You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. One of my favorite things to do is look at other countries, look at other cities, look at other states, and see how they do things differently from the way we do things where I'm from and see what lessons can be learned. And it's one of the reasons that I've always so enjoyed the study of uh, comparative politics and comparative government Uh, But also so many other things. I've enjoyed looking at the tax structures of other countries and seeing what countries do it well. What can we learn from from this country, from that country, so on and so forth. And one of the countries that I think has been remarkable in terms of both the tax code and democracy is New Zealand, believe it or not. New Zealand, I I came across this article yesterday. That said that New Zealand, I always think, I think New Zealand, there's a strong case to be made. It might be the most democratic country in the world. The list, there was a list that came out about three years ago listing the countries that have the most democratic traditions. And I think it listed New Zealand as third. I don't remember which countries were ahead of it, but it was interesting that um, New Zealand didn't quite make the number one list where I've always had it. And it was number three. Point is, New Zealand's got a great, vibrant democracy that is truly representative of how the people in New Zealand vote and how they feel about certain issues. There's also a wonderful book uh, called A Fine Mess, where the author of that book, T.R. Reid, goes on a global quest to look at the tax codes of each country. And ultimately, and you might remember on Tax Day, I interviewed T.R. Reid, and maybe I'll interview him again this April. But what he found is that the countries that had the best tax code, there were a lot of elements to like from Japan, a lot of elements to like from some other countries, but overall, the country that had the uh, simplest tax code, the lowest rates, the fewest loopholes, and the easiest way to file was New Zealand. So even though New Zealand is a small country, even though we uh, don't necessarily have a lot of listeners in New Zealand as far as I know, Although I did date a girl from New Zealand once. She was delightful. She was very nice. Her name was Rachel. And then, lo and behold, I would go on and marry Rachel. But, beside the point, New Zealand is very forward-thinking in a lot of different areas. And they passed a piece of legislation yesterday which, at first glance and at first blush, struck me as very bizarre and very odd. But then... As I always do, I took a step back and I said, huh, do you know what New Zealand did this week? 
New Zealand, and I'm curious what you would think about this in the United States or in New York State or New Jersey or wherever you live. New Zealand has passed the world's first tobacco law to ban smoking for the next generation. So this country is the first in the history of the world to implement an annually rising legal smoking smoking age. So they've introduced a smoking age that is steadily going to rise, which will stop those that are aged 14 and under currently from ever being able to legally purchase cigarettes. So this will effectively ban cigarette smoking for the next generation. The associate health uh, minister said at the law's passing on Tuesday, thousands of people will live longer, healthier lives, and the health system will be $5 billion better off from not needing to treat the illnesses caused by smoking, such as numerous types of cancer, heart attacks, strokes, amputations. So no country's ever done this before. This annually rising smoking age will ensure that tobacco cannot be sold to anyone born on or before, excuse me, on or after January 1st, 2009. It's going to be accompanied by a slew of other measures to make smoking less affordable and less accessible, including dramatically reducing the legal amount of nicotine in tobacco products, making them a little less addictive and forcing them to be sold only through specialty tobacco stores rather than corner stores and supermarkets. The country has also increased funding for health services and campaigns and rolled out quitting services specifically for uh, Maori and Pacific communities. I guess that's where smoking is uh, more prevalent out there. So the number of stores legally allowed to sell cigarettes will be reduced to a tenth of their existing level, from 6,000 now to just 600 nationwide. This is wild. This They have essentially made smoking illegal for the next generation. And my question for you is, we know the damage that cigarettes do. We know the damage they do to your health. We know the damage they do to the economy. We know the damage they do to the healthcare system. Is this something that states or countries around the world should look at? A couple of other, I don't know what this does to cigars. Uh, I'm a cigar smoker occasionally, um, and I'd like to look at that and see what is included in this with respect to cigars. But the new laws will not restrict vape sales, which I think is interesting. But essentially, if you're 91 years old, um, you know, however many years from now, you're going to be looking for a 92-year-old with uh, to buy you cigarettes and sneak you them so that you could smoke. But um, we know the dangers of smoking, and I'm curious if you think this is legislation that we should consider in the United States. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. To me, it comes down to three considerations. One, I don't like to tell people what they can do with their body, right? If you want to smoke, if you want to drink, if you want to uh, smoke marijuana, if you want to do whatever, God bless you. I tend to be of the live and let live attitude. The problem with a lot of substances 
like cigarette smoke, like booze, quite frankly, is that the legal availability of these substances does make them used more widely. We saw what happened during prohibition in the United States. A lot of gangsters got rich, certainly. But what else happened? Alcohol consumption in this country did go down. And all sorts of ailments related to alcoholism and consumption of alcohol did decrease. So there were a lot of people that just drank illegally, but there were also a lot of people that just drank less. Would the same thing happen with cigarettes? I guess the question really comes down to, does uh, prohibition work? Does it work for booze? Does it work for drugs? Does it work for tobacco cigarettes? And the other aspect to consider, though, the reason I kind of second-guess my own uh, civil libertarianism on this front is the cost. You heard the health minister there, or you heard me quote the health minister, in saying that there is $5 billion or more to in the economy that is lost because of ailments related to smoking. If they eventually trained the country to stop smoking with the combination of raising the legal smoking age, reducing the number of available places you could purchase cigarettes, and raising the cost of cigarettes, and doing a broad public awareness campaign... Would that lead to all that money being saved in the healthcare system? Now, part of the reason I don't think this would ever happen in the United States is because the localities, the states and the cities have become so hooked, not on nicotine, but on the taxes from cigarettes and cigars and tobacco. They use the funding from the cigarette taxes to fund government shortfalls. So while they may say that they want you to quit smoking and they may say that uh, they are putting those taxes on as a disincentive from people purchasing cigarettes, on the other hand, they're really reliant upon this tax revenue. But that's not my question for you. My question for you isn't will this happen in the United States, but should it? Is this an area where we should follow New Zealand's lead? Should we make smoking illegal? For people under the age of 14, meaning it's always going to be illegal for them. If you're old enough to smoke now, you can always smoke till the day you die, which if you smoke will be sooner rather than later. But if you're under the age of 14, forget about it. I think, by the way, this is an interesting way to enact legislation. I've always said on the congressional level that you are never going to get term limits unless Ever, or end life tenure on the Supreme Court unless you unless you grandfather everyone who's in there now. Meaning, if you're in Congress now, you're not subject to term limits, but everybody that comes in afterwards would be. I think um, this is the same philosophy and the same thinking behind smoking. So they're going to be reducing nicotine quantities in products and allowing sales only in 600 stores in the whole country. The aim is to be smoke-free by 2025. So um, as, as of now, if you're wondering what percentage of the New Zealanders are that smoke, only 8% of New, New Zealanders smoke. Any post-2008 baby who, t- who who take it up, will by 2100 be 91 years old, hanging around these cigarette shops, waiting for a 92-year-old to buy them cigarettes. 
I think this is creative. I think this is interesting. It's also a, re- a restriction of civil liberties. But I guess the fundamental question I'm trying to answer in my own brain is, is it worth restricting civil liberties if your right to smoke cigarettes is such a drain on the health care system and on a rising insurance premiums and on rising things like uh, Medicare costs and Medicaid costs? You're, if you're a smoker, you're costing all the non-smokers some money. Just like if you're obese, you're costing the people that aren't obese some money. Now, the way they um, kind of compensate for that in the United States is they usually give you, depending on your employer, they give you a little bit of a break on your insurance premiums if you're a non-smoker. This takes it to a whole new level. Curious what you think. Could this work here? Is this something that should be implemented? Yes? No? Why? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin uh, with the always outspoken, always opinionated David in the Bronx. Hello, David. Hey, good evening. Oh, good morning, actually, Frank. Either way. Um, At this this hour, you can say either way. No, that's true. I actually have family members from New Zealand. Uh, My niece was born there. Um, I don't see this working in this country because, A, we have a tobacco industry in this country. They don't have one in New Zealand. As far as I know, all their cigarettes are imported, so it would be much easier for them to restrict the sale and distribution of them. But I think also Americans are much more resistant to anything coming from the government. Unlike in New Zealand, where people, you know, they have a national health care system, they have a national college system. So they're much more used to taking, quote, orders from the government, unlike here. And the other reason I think this is not good is as a diabetic, I can tell you that diabetes is an incredibly destructive and expensive disease. And if New Zealand was serious, they would restrict the sale of soda and sugary beverages, and they're not doing that. Well, maybe they will, so, though, right? I mean, if only if only 8% of the country is smoking cigarettes right now, presumably a much larger portion of the country is drinking sodas and sugary drinks, maybe they view this as uh, an easier hill to climb because it, it affects so many fewer New Zealanders. You see what I mean? Well, see, that's the slippery slope. And, and, you know, I actually I know you don't believe this, but I actually have libertarian leanings on a lot of this type of stuff. And I just don't like the idea of government dictating to people what they should do or not do when it comes to private behavior. Now, if you want to increase taxes on cigarettes, which happens all the time, which actually has apparently cut down on you smoking, fine. But don't pass some law telling people that they don't have access to cigarettes. Look what happened with marijuana. And, and all the other drugs right. that we have in this country, it didn't. It hasn't worked in uh, 90 years. You think cigarette bans would work? Of course not. Well, so that's the whole thing is can prohibition work if it's staggered and, and graduated as what they're doing in New Zealand? Your answer is no, it can't. No, I, I honestly don't think it's a good idea, and I don't think it would work here. And honestly, I'm not sure it's going to work in New Zealand in the end because – even though they're sort of a socialist-leaning country, there is a strong right-leaning base there because I can tell you from relatives there, they, they actually they, – I actually have relatives there that are Trumpers in New Zealand. So we'll see how this pans out, but I don't think it would ever work here or even be proposed in a serious manner. Well, well let's Thank see. You, Thank you, David. Let's see what happens. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven open lines if you want to jump on board and offer your two cents – 
New Zealand is making cigarette smoking illegal. Not for the adults, but for the children, and they will never be able to smoke. Good idea? Bad idea? Something the United States should emulate? What do you think? 800-848-9222. Charlie is in Chester. Hello, Charlie. Oh, hi, Frank. Thanks for calling me. I just want to say quickly, uh, I think tobacco is a uh, masculine thing for guys. Finally, I think people will eliminate war, a real masculine thing for guys, and the men will become effeminate fairies. Uh, well, that's ridiculous, Charlie. I mean, look, uh, I mean, I, I don't even know that I need to respond to it. But there are certain calls you go to when there's only one caller on the board. And that is a textbook example of um, of that right there. You know, you think of people smoking cigarettes. I don't associate it with uh, masculinity. Maybe a pipe, a tobacco pipe, I would uh, say is more of a traditionally masculine thing. Um, you know, may, but I mean, if you think even of guys like uh, John Barrymore, who would smoke a cigarette in the cigarettes uh, in the with the cigarette holder or things of that nature, folks like uh, Audrey Hepburn, who would use the cigarette holder. I think, if anything, I, I think of cigarette smoking as more of a more of a feminine thing. But I, I don't really associate gender with with masculinity or femininity. But um Again, I just did what I said I wasn't going to do, and I responded to Charlie's ridiculous comment. The obsession that Charlie has with masculinity is really very frightening and somewhat telling. And it's the kind of thing that, uh, look, I have no problem talking about masculinity. And I have no problem talking about trends in masculinity. But for you to, you know, he's like one of these guys that... It almost reminds me of Debbie Schlussel. You know how she makes everything about politics? Any movie, you know, uh, is political in Debbie Schlussel's mind. And that, and that's fine. It's kind of the, what I find amusing about having her on the show. But everything in Charlie's world comes down to gender. I mean, it's just bizarre. Bizarre. All right. If you want to rescue us from uh, would-be Charlie's, E. Franks, and others, etc., you can do so at 800-848-9222. Otherwise, we have a lot of other things to get to. Uh, we're going to talk with my colleague Brian Kilmeade a little bit later, and uh, we're going to go uh, down live to Nevada and talk with Roger Gross. Roger Gross is a gaming analyst, a casino expert, and he's going to break down for us the um, – possibility of casinos coming to New York and what that means, not just for New Yorkers, but other area casinos in general. A lot of other stuff to get to throughout the course of the program. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Wait a minute, this love started off so tender, so sweet. This is Smoking Out the Window by, uh, by who? It's Bruno Mars, Anderson Pack, otherwise known as Silk Sonic. All right, there you have it. Um, if you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this program, you could just join our Facebook group at uh, Murano Radio Fans and Haters, and we list the songs there each and every morning. 
That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio fans and haters. Talking about the situation in New Zealand where they're doing something that no other country in the history of the world has done. They're making cigarettes illegal for anybody under the age of 14. They will never be able to smoke cigarettes. Do you think that is a good idea? Do you think that's, that's something that could work here? What do you think? 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Deirdre in New Jersey. Hello, Deirdre. How you doing, Frank? I'm well, Deirdre. Uh, it sounds like you might have had a cigarette or two in your day. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember buying cigarettes at six years old from my mother running across the street, getting her two packs, okay? As far as here in New Jersey, there is that law. You can't purchase it underneath the age of 21. But let's right, go but, down in the but history. Once, once you turn 21, you're able to purchase them. In New Zealand, Correct. once they turn 21, the people that are under 14 now, they're not going to be able to purchase them. Right. And what I'm trying to say is, you know what? It all started here, I believe, in the USA, and I don't know wherever else, but it started with the marble guy in the Stetson hat. You know, smoking that marble cigarette, making him look good, appealing. Then the capitalism said, well, how can we get more people? So um, Philip Morris said, we need to make it more better, more appealing. So we'll put the lady. Remember the lady with lucky stripes? Sure. In her, in her, yeah. So now we got to get the women. So we need more. Philip Morris needed more money. So how are we going to get more money? They advertise the woman smoking to make it appealing. Okay, let's face this, Frank. Everybody's got an addiction, from sexual addiction to eating addiction to shopping addiction to smoke. We're human. Addiction is part of our human nature. However you're going to take your addiction to its level is something other than whatever. So New Zealand might say, you can't smoke, but you know what? Somebody's anxiety is going to be uh, something else. Do you get where I'm coming from? I I think so. But what do you say, Deirdre, to the argument that um, you, by by doing this, by prohibiting smoking or getting fewer – but what do you say to the fact that people who smoke – they add health care costs to the economy, and we all have to pay if someone smokes. I, I get that, but you know you know how many people I know who have cancer and never picked up a cigarette? Do you know how many people I know? Well, I, I, I mean, yeah. Lung cancer or this cancer. They no, never picked up a cigarette. Well, no doubt about it, Deirdre. You can get uh, cancer any number. You know, you can get cancer because of a biological imposition yeah. or any any number of other things. But um, it, it's it certainly you're much less likely to you're much more likely to have increased health care costs if you're a smoker. And I think if you so eight percent of New Zealanders are smokers. Why should the other ninety two percent of the country have to pay? for the increased health care costs and the $5 billion drain on the economy because of that 8%. Okay, I, I get where you're coming from. But that, well, it's not even where I'm coming from. It's where it's where the New Zealanders are coming from. Yeah. Yes, yes, and I, t- I totally get it. And we could do that in every country of the world. Well, well wait a minute, you got the drug addicts, so maybe, right. you know what I mean? Yeah. We, we could do that. We could play that game of we're funding drug addicts in the USA and – their health industry and their to get better industry and organizations, you know. So, no, but they're going to have another problem. 
they can do that. You're right. I understand. Well, but, uh, you know, again, I I tend to side with you because I'm a believer that, you know, live and let live. People should be able to um, make their own decisions about their own health and their own lives. I just think this is a pretty, pretty creative way to go about it. And I'm wondering if other countries are going to follow New Zealand's lead. A great call, Deirdre. Thank you so much. Oh, have a great night. Appreciate it. 800-848. 9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Adrian is in Manhattan. Hello, Adrian. Hey, um, I would love it if we would do what New Zealand was doing, but I don't think it will work here because uh, how do you ban tobacco when at the same time they're encouraging pot in, in every, in every, you know, it's just sort of... It's ridiculous. Pot is smoking, but you're going to ban tobacco but not pot? I wish they would ban it all. And as far as the civil liberties uh, issue, I agree there's a civil liberties issue, but not for the smoker. It's for for those of us that don't smoke that love to be able to go to the park without having to inhale someone else's pot smoke or tobacco smoke. Uh, it's a civil liberties issue for the fish. If you check out the statistics, some of the biggest uh, dumping of garbage in the oceans are smoke-related paraphernalia. Uh, just go to any park in the city now, and you'll see Riverside, where I go daily to work out. Oh, they're smoky. They, they leave their butts everywhere. You, you know, or then you get the chimney smoker well, where they so hold a- Adrian, it. Adrian, I totally get you know? everything you're saying. So, right? I, to- I, I wish they would do it here, but, but I don't. I don't see it happening uh, because of this rise of pot as being the new thing. So. Well, so let's say, um, but forgetting about the practicality of it, because it does seem that the very same people in many cases that are moving to either decriminalize or make marijuana legal are in some cases the same people that are trying to make it more difficult to legally smoke, uh, uh, meaning tobacco. They've made smoking tobacco illegal on beaches in New York. They've made it illegal to smoke in parks in New York. It's illegal to smoke in beaches in New Jersey. They've it's ra- illegal, but they don't enforce well, the law, uh, yeah, so but, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, but, but still, so the same people that have moved forward with marijuana decriminalization, they're moving forward with more stringent regulations for tobacco. If um, if you could be convinced, aside putting aside the practicality of it, would you like to see the United States do this? It sounds like the answer of is course, yes. Of course, of course. And what the, the victims of secondhand smoke? It's profound. Forget about lung cancer. I, I know three people. Yeah, never smoked, but they were around smokers. Right. All have lung cancer and bladder cancer, breast cancer. You see these mothers smoking and blowing it on their babies' faces. There's a consequence to that. Uh, so, yeah, I'd love to see a smoke-free America. I think it would be better for everything. Well, but, and again, uh, I think the way that New Zealand is approaching this is very creative in terms of just kind of grandfathering it in. Adrian, thank you for the call. 800-848-9222. To her point about secondhand smoke, I used to be – I remember when Mike Bloomberg proposed banning smoking in public places, bars and restaurants. I used to go out a lot to bars and restaurants. And I, I didn't like the smoke in bars and restaurants, except when I would, um, you know, I would occasionally have a cigar at a bar or something. But even still, I didn't like the smell of tobacco smoke everywhere. But at the time, and this is going back 18 years ago, I was uh, maybe more, uh, 20 years ago, I was opposed to this ban on smoking in public places for civil liberties reasons. I thought 
that if I had a restaurant and I wanted to market this or I had a bar and I wanted to market this as the smoker's bar, I should have a right to do so. I should have a right to be able to. But I ultimately became convinced that it was unfair after it passed. One, I loved it after it passed because I could go out for a bar. I I could go out for a drink in a bar or go to a restaurant and not have to worry about choking on cigarette smoke. I hated that. That was my least favorite thing of going to weddings and parties back in the day is needing to choke uh, when you needed to walk by the smoking section to go to the restroom. I thought it was great. And even though even though I I liked the change, I had some reservations about it in the first place because I didn't know I didn't think that that was an appropriate thing from a freedom perspective. But my mind has been changed. And, you know, we're having the same debate now in Atlantic City when it comes to smoking. We may get into this when we do the AC report in our uh, in our third hour. Ray in New Jersey, what say you? Yeah, uh I think one of the callers touched on it. The cigarette companies, they they will market, they want to sell it to everybody. So they did kind of make it when they had like the Marlboro man, you know, he was looking masculine, all tough. So they did, you know, they'll change the ads to whoever they're trying to target. You know what I mean? And uh, also, you know, they used to have the cigarette machines. When I was 12 years old, we used to go in the store and buy them. So, you know, I think it should, they should do what New Zealand's doing, but Interesting. I think maybe the tobacco companies should pay for the health care for people who get sick from, you know, that have smoked all their lives. All right, well, well let's, let's, put that, that. let's put that aside because that's almost what they've done in these tobacco settlements. That money that they've been forced to spend on tobacco settlements, a lot of that is supposed to be earmarked for remedying the damage that they've done. But, um, what do you say, like, let's say we were to do uh, something like what New Zealand is doing. What do you say to the argument that, hey, once someone's an adult, they should be able to make their own decisions. Give them all the warnings. Give them all the information. Do the PSA campaigns. But once someone's over the age of 21, if they make the decision in their own life that smoking cigarettes is something that they want to do, why should the government be able to stop them? Yeah, well, if they're going to sell them, they should be able to, you know. Are they going to sell them or not? You well, know? they're going to the sell them in to... fewer and fewer places if we go with this New Zealand uh, model. The governments are trying to control everything nowadays. That's all I can say. All Thanks, right, Frank. Well, thank you. Gino is in Brooklyn. Hello, Gino. Hello. I'm actually in Florida this week, and I'm not a smoker. And you know what's wonderful? When I walk out And, and the bar, next thing you're going to tell me is your name's not Gino, right? <laughs> I walk out of a bar and my clothes are stinking where I have to leave them on the floor. That's nostalgic for me. I don't like it. I don't care for it, but it's nostalgic. I hate it. Nevada. Yeah. You have Nevada right? But aside from that, aside from that, you know, it's going to get absurd. This is what you, you can have a 50-year-old in New Zealand asking a 52-year-old to go sneak That's in to right. buy cigarettes at some point. That's right. It's stupid. That's stupid. It's the same logic that, you know, down here in Florida, they try to, they're trying to get the helmet laws because you can drive a, a motorcycle without a helmet. And they're trying to use the same thing for um, medical costs for the accidents to say, you know, we're paying for this. We're subsidizing this. We, should, we, we ought to make them all wear 
helmets. Same thing, you know, Bloomberg was going with sugary drinks. I mean, it gets absurd in, in America. Well, no, but you know, we okay, but so people the, to get, uh, you know, the, the helmet uh, debate, the helmet debate is still is going on in New Jersey, right? There's a proposal to make yeah. uh, adults wear helmets while they're riding a bicycle. Currently, it's only children that have to wear a helmet while riding a bicycle. But the um, same argument. It's the same yeah, argument. It is. Though. It is. But so why is that argument flawed, though? Because we have personal freedoms. And if I want to smoke or if I want to smoke weed or if I want to smoke crack in my house, I should be able to do that in America. If I don't want to get a shot that the government says is effective, then I should be able to not do that in my house or right. not do that in my life. And if those – if of course, the medical costs for that are, are ridiculous. It's the same argument there. We should be now, according to Fauci today, we should be on our fourth booster if we listen to that wacko. Right. So, I mean, how far do you push this in America with the, with free choice and, and liberties? You know, these are things they don't have in the rest of the world. And that's what makes us better than them. Right. Well, that's uh, so should you not have to wear a seatbelt while driving a car, for instance? Correct. Right. I shouldn't have to wear a seatbelt. I shouldn't have to wear a sunblock. I shouldn't have to wear, you well, know, well, uh, so, a bike helmet. So that is a that condom, is really a condom if I don't want well, to. So that right? is really extreme libertarianism, uh, which and that was exactly what uh, folks said, that you shouldn't. Car manufacturers shouldn't have to include seatbelts. They shouldn't have to improve. Um, they shouldn't have to include airbags. And I think um, I think that is just as dangerous of a slippery slope. I mean, I guess the question, Gino, is is where do when your freedoms cost the rest of us money, where does that end? Like, wh- how far well, should you be whole, able to that go? That is the whole conversation, right? Right. That is exactly. the whole conversation here. But we don't want the government making those decisions because we've learned time and time again when they do, they screw it up. Well, but so why? Why don't we want the government making decisions, whereas in a country like New Zealand, which has a strong, vibrant democracy, if we don't like the decisions the government makes, we can elect new people to make new decisions? Well, that's true, but we all know that laws happen in perpetuity, right? Things rarely get reduced. Right, well, prohibition. I'm looking for for a New York politician to reduce all these speed cameras, which don't even exist here in Florida, but they're on every four blocks in New York, right? Another cash grab, right? So everything, but I mean, the reality is you could disincentivize things without making them illegal and never mention the ridiculousness of enforcement. Imagine trying to give a 50-year-old a ticket in a bar for smoking cigarettes. Yeah, no, I, I get it. I get Thank you, Gino. Prohibition is an area where that was a law that was repealed. It was a constitutional amendment that you couldn't, I know there were a lot of loopholes, but you couldn't manufacture and sell alcohol for recreational purposes, and that was repealed, right? 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls in just a minute. Interesting day uh, for me today. Uh, I have to tell you, we're going to be a little all over the place today in terms of uh, a show. I have a lot of stuff that I want to talk about, so I think we're going to be fine, but... This was a day, uh, a day of days yesterday, because I told you, I um, Brian Kilmeade, who's going to be joining us in the last hour of the program, and if you are uh, somebody that um, lives in Alaska or lives in Tennessee and you're listening to this show, you are missing out. But he uh, he's going to join us in our last hour, and he hosted this lunch today. And so um, it, the lunch took place seven and a half hours after I got off the, the radio. So I was debating, should I get a haircut? Should I sleep? Should I sleep and then get a haircut? So I go to my friend Arthur's office, very prominent attorney here in New York, Arthur Idala, And I go over there. And as I'm walking there, I see 
there's a like a men's salon around the corner. Very prominent men's salon. I said, oh, my. If I get up a little earlier, maybe I'll have time to go in there and actually get a haircut. But I said, let me my, let my primary priority be sleeping. So I saunter over. He's got this room. It's the best place to sleep that I've ever slept in. I get my best sleep in my entire life in this room. It's called the Sinatra Room. Uh, the New York Post did an article about it. The New York Times did an article about it. You could just Google it. Uh, Arthur Idala Sinatra Room. A whole world opens up. I've linked to it on Facebook. Uh, not recently, but when those articles came out. And you close the door, and it's pitch black. There's a super super comfortable couch in there. I mean, I don't know what goes on in this couch, but it's so comfortable. I don't know what that couch is doing, which every other couch is doing wrong. Uh, wrong. It is. It has a massage chair in there. It's got chargers for your mobile phones. There's a television set in there. In my brain, there's a, a radio in there. There's a fully stocked bar. I think there's a fan in there. There's a blanket. It is a room designed for creature comforts. And the most important aspect of it is you close the door and it's black. Black. Um, and I was talking to Arthur the day, night before, and I said, hey, you know, you're going to be around. Maybe I'll see you at the office. He says, no, I'm at my Brooklyn office tomorrow. But go ahead. Do your thing. Lock the door. No one will bother you. So I do that. I lock the door. And sure enough, one of his associates uh, or, or partner, Imran, comes in at one point and knocks on the door because he wasn't sure who was in there. I, thought, I don't know what he thought, if it was some uh, vagrant that has was setting up shop in there. But, okay, I went right back to sleep. And you know how – so it's very interesting. And some of you are probably listening to me right now as you're asleep, and you can relate to this. So I start having dreams while I'm asleep about Rudy Giuliani. And trust me, I love Rudy Giuliani, great mayor, great guy, and a colleague, and I consider him a friend. Um I start dreaming about Rudy, but the dream is so vivid. It's like he's there talking to me, and it's it seems real that he's right there talking to me. We're having a whole detailed conversation about the law and about legal cases. So sure enough, I finally wake up in the midst of these Giuliani dreams, which are pretty consistent. And I wake up, still pitch black, and even though I'm awake, I still hear Rudy Giuliani. Sure enough, Rudy Giuliani is in the room next to me talking with his lawyers. Arthur's law firm represents Rudy Giuliani, and he was meeting with his attorneys. He's got two very good attorneys, both uh, Democrats, by the way, both former Democratic judges in New York, and one is an appellate division judge. Uh, and uh, they both say that they've never seen anybody get screwed in terms of this law license issue the way that Rudy is. But Rudy was in the room right next door to me, loudly speaking, and their door was open. And so because I was listening to this while I was asleep, that became the soundtrack of my dream. And it was really quite surreal to wake up and find uh, that that's that was actually Rudy Giuliani. I'm sure a lot of you are listening to me while you're asleep, and I'm in your dream. We're on a boat together, or we're uh, you know we're, we're mopping a floor together, or we're playing baseball together. Whatever the case may be, maybe you're here in the studio with me. That used to happen with me all the time. I would set my alarm clock radio 
to wake up, uh, to have different radio programs play as I'd wake up, and those people would become my friends in my dream. And that's part of one of, one of the many things that I think makes radio so intimate. So anyway, got some great sleep at Arthur's. I go down, um, walk past that uh, men's salon. It's closed. I don't know if it's closed permanently or it just opens later in the day. Okay, no big deal. Um, now I have morning breath in the middle of the the day, right? So I said, all right, let me go into a store, get some gum or something. So that's what I did. And then I walk over to the place that we had lunch at, great uh, old school New York restaurant, Bobby Vans, their original location. And I'm early. So I have a drink at the bars. I'm waiting for uh, Brian Kilmeade and Sid Rosenberg and our, our bosses, uh, John Katzmatidis and Chad Lopez and everybody. And uh, we have lunch. It was a pretty good time. I got to tell you, I don't know what was going on at lunch today, but you know how they say everyone has their time in the barrel? Now, there's a lot of good-natured ribbing going on. But Oh, Peter King was there. But for whatever reason... This lunch, and I'm going to ask this, uh, I'm going to talk to Brian about this when we see him. Uh, This lunch became the roast of Frank Morano. Everybody took their turns bashing me for something. I think John made a note of everything he's heard on this show in the last two years that he didn't like. And made sure to mention it at some point. Now, I don't mind. I can handle being uh, teased as well as anybody. These people have been just, embarrassed. Just I, ask I uh, Curtis Lewa. But uh, it was very interesting that the whole tone of the lunch became uh, a roast of Frank Moreno. But it was, so that it was fun. I didn't get much sleep and didn't get much of an opportunity to work on the show because then I had to come back, uh, back home, look after <laughs> young Carmine, who's still dealing with this um, Flu situation, he's about 85, 90% better. Tomorrow's his final day of um, Tamiflu, and they say after Sunday we won't have to isolate him anymore. They say for children, you're contagious for just about seven days. So after Sunday, we'll be able to have him interact with uh, the public again. And then um, and then uh, I had to record an episode of uh, of the Racket Report, which will – talk about a little bit later uh, because of fascinating, fascinating guest on uh, the most recent edition of the Racket Report. You can uh, check that out just by searching the Racket Report on any podcast app. So that was my day uh, today. So if uh, the show seems a little scattered, it's because it's a little scattered. Let me say hello to Mike in West Virginia. Hello, Mike. Hello. Uh, yeah, on the uh, tobacco deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember when uh, I think it was uh, the company called Brown, and they settled with the state of West Virginia. And I think the check that they sent was a little over $300 million. And what the uh, state government did was they called up a special session, and they put that money in the general fund. Mm-hmm. Instead of what it was given to the state of West Virginia, you know, for people to go get x-rays or whatever, you know, over smoking. And I thought, well, there you go. Well, yeah, and, uh, I, I don't blame and, you. You know, you, you, uh, it doesn't matter what the, the, the industry does, the government will find one way or another to, you know, 
get the money in their pockets. Yeah, I, I, I hear that, Mike. And I think that cynicism is well-placed in the United States because what what they would do in a country like New Zealand, which has a vibrant democracy, is they would take the politicians that did that and rob the public of that money that they were entitled to, and they would throw them out of office. Now, in America, I don't know, I'm not an expert on West Virginia politics, but I do know a thing or two about American politics and politics in the Northeast. In America, there are so many uh, hindrances to us being a true democracy that it becomes very difficult to ever hold our politicians accountable. In America, a lot of times these politicians run for office unopposed. So even if you want to say, and thanks for the call, Mike, even if you want to say, hey, that guy's a bum, I don't like what he did with the tobacco money, I, um, you really have very little recourse because the guy might be unopposed. If he is opposed... Uh, chances are he's raised a whole bunch of money from special interest groups and a challenger that's challenging him can't do it. So people don't know he's running and he has very little chance of getting elected. See, in America, that's what this is my constant theme on any public policy issue in America. The problem, whether we're talking crime, uh, we were at this lunch yesterday and John Katzmatidis said the same thing at this lunch. There were about 10 of us or, or 12 of us. So the same thing at this lunch that he says every day on the radio. He says, I don't care if someone's a Democrat or a Republican. Uh, the only thing I care about is law and order. And one of the things that I pointed out with John on the radio before is that really the key to the crime issue is political reform. The key to every issue, the war in Ukraine, the uh, situation in Yemen, crime, taxes, ethanol subsidies, you name it. The key to every issue is reforming politics itself. Until we can reform the special interest domination of our political process, everything else is academic. Because until the people themselves have more power and a more meaningful say in governing themselves, then the rest of it's all just nonsense. Because the same special interests, the same powers that be, are going to continue to rule your lives, whether that's uh, a big, bad corporation or whether it's a big, bad, uh, uh, you know, a collection of trial attorneys. doesn't matter. Uh, all sorts of special interest groups are, um, you, you know, one perfect example is the good government movement itself. You know, in Alaska, they, they passed this ridiculous uh, system of voting called um, – final five. They just passed it in Nevada as well. It's got to be passed one more time in Nevada. Makes no sense. There are um, five, there are maybe 150 democracies in the world. Not one of them uses final four or final five. So why are states implementing it in the United States? Well, the only reason that they're implementing it is because there's a very wealthy woman that thinks it's a good idea and she's funding campaigns to get it passed in state after state. There's no academic research to show that it supports anybody or anything. It's just that, well, she thinks it's a good idea and she's got the money to get it on the ballot. Now, um, it's bizarre, but that's the kind of that's the kind of thing that our current political system in this country incentivizes. So, all right, uh, those of you that are calling on smoking or anything else, I'll get to you. We have one, two, three, four, four open lines if you want to comment, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 
other side of midnight with Frank Morano. You're probably, for the next 10 days, going to hear this 9,000 times a day. This is never the kind of song that I would ever want to play. Uh, this is, a, I try to do the things that you don't hear on other shows and on other stations on this show, whether it's topics, whether it's guests, whether it's music. We try to do things that you don't hear elsewhere. Why then are we playing um, this song? Well, today is the birthday of uh, my brother Nicholas and my cousin Natalie, my oldest first cousin. She, um, you know, I have, I have many first cousins once removed. I have many second cousins. Um, but I only have, I have more second cousins than I could count. I only have three first cousins. And um, Natalie was the oldest girl. I was the oldest boy of all my grandmother's grandchildren. That's why we were always her two favorite quite honestly. So um, happy birthday, Natalie. And so what I told Natalie and Nicholas is that they could pick all of the all the bumper music for today. So uh, some of the songs are quite good. Some of the songs are songs that I would pick. This is not really one of them. Not one. Uh, but whatever. It is what it is. 800-848-9222. Hey, what do you think is the most stressful job in America. Give that some thought. I want to get to these folks that have been holding for a while. Uh, let me see. Oh, Loretta has been holding a while in Brooklyn. Hello, Loretta. Hi. Good morning, morning. Frank. Um, I've been a non-smoker. Uh, I can remember when I was a minority back in the 70s. And I only worked in a supermarket, a large supermarket. And I'm behind the register. I would tell people, put out your cigarettes um, if you want to come on my line. And they actually got off my line so they could keep smoking. Wow. Because I'm pinned behind the register. And uh, I grew up on my mother's cigarettes. I lived with my husband's cigarettes. And uh, while I'm working, let me breathe. You know, I can't go anywhere. You can. You're shopping. Right. So... Sometime, not not long after, they put the big red sign in the supermarket, no smoking permitted by order of the fire department. That's when it started. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, I think that makes a lot of sense, uh, Loretta. So given your experience, do you think that uh, what New Zealand is doing, kind of banning smoking for children forever, do you think that's a good idea? I think there should be an age limit like over here. Well, yeah, there is an age limit. But um, what they're saying is that even once you become an adult, you're still not going to be able to smoke. Oh, well, that's not democracy. Well, it is democracy because they voted for it. 
well, then they're they're not too bright. <laughs> I don't okay. Know. All right. Um, um, I, I, um, as far as uh, the, the the government, I don't think it's going to happen here because the government needs the tax money. Well, that's what I said. Yeah, I, I think my you're... husband, my husband said a uh, long time ago, cigarettes are cheap. It's the tax money. They call it the yeah, thin tax. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's he's exactly right and uh, absolutely right. And your uh, thanks, Loretta. And your experience about smoking while being a worker, I get that. You know, years ago. When I would have a cigar while playing blackjack or something, sometimes even even though smoking was permitted in the casino, the dealer would say one time this one Asian woman, she said, please, you know, don't smoke. I said, well, it's allowed. And she said, well, you're blowing the smoke. It's blowing right towards me. She said, I'm a person just like you. And you know what? After that, I generally haven't uh, smoked while at a table game unless everybody consents. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I alluded to this before. There has been a list published from USA Today ranking the uh, Occupational Information Network's ranking of nearly 900 jobs in terms of stress levels. What do you think the most stressful job is, according to this data? And I'm trying to work my way past all these paywalls to... okay. To see what uh, what's where, um, Matt Blaze. Serious question: What do you think is the most stressful job in America? The first thing that came to my mind was air traffic controller. Air traffic controller. Did you look this up? I did not. Okay, that is um, that is up there, but it is uh, one. It, it's 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 up there. It's but it's not in the top ten. One, two, three. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, uh, thirteen, fourteen. It's in the. It looks like it's about. Looks like it's about twenty. Looks like it's about twenty-five. Right? Yeah, right, right around there. Uh, you have a. You have a. Something you want to add? Go ahead. Uh, map. Uh, Alex Barnard is here. You don't say news anchor. You're not going to claim news anchor. No, I was right? going to say a producer on your show, but oh please, you got you guys don't know what stress is. Uh, you should you should uh, please you work with Curtis for uh, a, a, a day and clean up his vomit, and you'll know what stress is. Believe me, um, you guys have it easy. But anyway, um, I'm going to give you just the top ten. I'm not going to go through all these. Most of these, I have to tell you, most of these surprised me. Um, I was surprised by almost all of these. Not all. I I would say I was surprised by 7 out of 10. Okay? I'll I'll go backwards, like David Letterman style. You know what they claim is the 10th most stressful job? Along with their, uh, again, I'm trying to see the criteria that they used here. But they say that the 10th most stressful job is actually a nurse anesthetist. I 
can buy that this is a stressful job because in many respect in many respects and I've known a lot of nurse anesthetists over the years they really do the job of the anesthesiologists and they don't get paid like the anesthesiologists do and there's some states where they don't even require an anesthesiologist to be present there are some states that allow the nurse anesthetists to do the job but the anesthesiologists have such a powerful lobby goes back to the root cause of what we were saying before that until you can repair the um the governing structures of America until then you really can't do much about anything but I am surprised that nurse anesthetists rank so high I recognize you're dealing with life and death situations but it's an pretty high median salary you know what the median salary for a nurse anesthetist is $195,610. It's a lot of money. More money than I'm making. So I, I usually usually you don't see you don't see people that are making that much money considered stressed out. Uh and I'm I'm surprised that that ranked that high. Number nine does not surprise me in the least. I would have bet that this was number one, two, or three. Okay. Number nine is first in first line supervisors of retail sales workers. I absolutely buy this as being one of the most stressful jobs in America because not only do you really not get paid very well, you basically your median salary is about thirty nine thousand two hundred thirty dollars. It's uncomfortable. You do a lot of standing. You end up having customers flip out on you all day. You end up having other staff members argue with you all day. So you really never get a break, right? And uh, it's not like it's a real opportunity to showcase your creativity or anything like that. And no matter how good of a job you do, it's not like you see much of a difference in terms of output. So I can absolutely buy that that is that that's stressful. Number eight, I also believe as being very stressful. Number eight, public safety telecommunicators. I'm assuming that's uh, like a nine one one operator. That makes sense, right? People call you in the most stressful situations of their lives. They're relying upon you to save their lives or send help. You're trying to get as much information as you can in a very short amount of time. And the median salary is only forty six thousand six hundred seventy dollars. I get that. Number seven, I'm a little surprised by. I can I recognize that healthcare is a very stressful field, and a lot of these deal with healthcare. Number seven is obstetricians and gynecologists. $208,000 a year median salary. I am surprised that that's such a stressful job. If you're an obstetrician or a gynecologist, give me a call and explain to me why. Uh, 800-848-9222. Number six, this makes a little more sense to me, acute care nurses. Makes sense for the obvious reasons. The salary is not what it should be, and the work you're doing is very stressful. Dealing with sick people, dealing with dying people, needing to communicate all this information to them, seeing them on a daily basis while the doctors are off who knows where. You're dealing with the patients. You're dealing with the patient's family, and the median salary is only around $77,000. I get that. Makes sense. Number five, I do not understand at all. Do you know what they claim is the fifth most stressful job in America? Telephone operators. Telephone what? operators? 
I get that you're not making a lot of money and you're not necessarily getting to squirrel a lot away for your vacation home or for your country club dues. But really? Telephone operator? Is that list from like 1975? But it makes no sense. I, I can't understand how that ranks so high. When was the last time you spoke to a telephone operator? Well, look, I, I'm figuring they're including not just, uh, you know, connect me to uh, Brian 4444 or Klondike 5682. Pennsylvania 65000. Right, right. I'm assuming that I call the bank and I try to get my ATM card working and the person that answers and directs my call, I'm assuming they're counting that as a telephone operator. That and- sounds like, isn't that like just like customer service? I don't know, but I guess the first line of defense is the telephone operator. Mm. I, I don't understand it. I get that it can be a stressful job, but are we really saying that a telephone operator is a more stressful job than public but the nine one one operator or or acute care nurse? Makes no sense to me. Uh, this is another one that I completely disagree with. Number four, they're claiming this is the fourth most stressful job in America. And I think this tells you everything you need to know about this list. Judges and magistrates. I know a lot of judges. There's some judges listening to us right now. These judges that I know are some of the least stressed out people that I know. The judges that I know, many of them went to the bench because being a lawyer or a politician was too stressful. The salary is very good. And honestly, you're not exactly working... uh, coal miners' hours here, and you're not digging ditches either. It's a pretty cushy gig, to be honest. Now, obviously, you have the situation where you don't want to make the wrong decision about someone's um, incarceration. Should this person get bail? Should that person get bail? But in states like New York, states like New Jersey, well, especially New York, you don't have to make that decision anyway. Everybody gets bail. Number three, uh, anesthesiologists' assistants Also surprised that that ranks so high. Number two, and this blew my mind. I get that this is a stressful job, but I'm I'm shocked that this ranks so high. They're claiming that the second most stressful job in America, and I know this is a stressful job because you're dealing with deadlines, you're dealing with a time crunch, you're dealing with demands of all sorts of people. They're claiming that the second most stressful job in America is film and video editor. Film and video what? editor. More stressful than, than coal miner? What? what? Than police officer? I, I don't understand that. Uh, than crisis counselor? I, I don't get that at all. And then number one, and I'm not sure why this ranks so stressful, but I think if you think about it, the, it, it does kind of make sense a little bit. They're saying that the number one most stressful job in America, I'm going to link to this list if you want to see it, uh, facebook.com slash Morano fan. Yes, the uh, number one most uh, stressful job in America, as uh, published in USA Today, is urologist. Urologist. Now... I get it. Uh, just like gynecologist, you're dealing with people's private parts. That's That can be uncomfortable. You're dealing with cancer diagnoses, prostate cancer in the case of urologists, um, you know, cervical cancer and other types of cancers in the case of gynecologists. I get that. 
But really? Urologists? You make a good living. My, my mom's neighbor is a urologist. I, I don't get the sense that he's super stressed out. I actually get the sense that he's, I don't know, pretty mellow. So I, I don't, you take this list for what it is. If you can explain any context to any of these, you're welcome to. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And uh, number 11, um, and I could see this, is nurse midwives, if you want to go to number 11. Okay. Um, that makes sense to me, right? You're, very, you're dealing with people in very stressful situations. You do something wrong. You have a mother's health at stake. You have a baby's health at stake. I, I get that. That, to me, is a much more stressful job than film and video editor. I don't get that at all. Um, 800-848-9222. Nobody ranked politician anywhere uh, anywhere up there, uh, which I get. Now, um, this was a story that caught my eye. Uh, this was one a listener actually emailed me. And if you want to email me, you can do so at uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. This is a story out of Oregon. They just elected a new governor in Oregon. I believe the old governor was uh, term limited. And the outgoing governor, Kate Brown, who I think is pretty unpopular with Oregonians, and she's made a lot of wrong decisions, and she's leaving. They thought, actually, this might be one of the rare instances, first time in decades, that the Republicans might have a shot at winning the governor's mansion, in part because the outgoing Democratic governor, Kate Brown, is so unpopular. Listen to what she's doing. She is, in her final weeks in office, Oregon has the death penalty on its books in the state constitution. They don't actually kill anybody, but they have the death penalty on their books. So she is commuting the sentences of everybody on death row. Everybody that's waiting for the death penalty in Oregon, she's taken upon herself to commute their sentences and move them to life in prison. She's also dismantling the state execution chamber in an effort to effectively end capital punishment in Oregon. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm against the death penalty. I don't believe in the death penalty. Um, I don't want to have a whole death penalty debate right now, but I'm just telling you where I come from. That being said, I think what she's doing is outrageous here. There is a criminal justice system in Oregon. There is a set of laws in Oregon. If you want to do away with the death penalty... There is a constitutionally provided prescription for doing so. You, you shouldn't be able to just wave your magic wand and say, even though these people have been sentenced to death, without any debate on the merits of these individual cases, I am commuting these 17 individual sentences from death, death row to life in prison. That's not right. There's a process. And the people of the state of Oregon have to vote to change the Constitution. Why not arrange for them to vote instead of taking this upon yourself? I have a big problem with this. You know, it's the same thing in, in New York. You know, we had a gubernatorial election recently, and we um, there was a guy running Lee Zeldin, and there's a, a terrible DA in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg. 
And he was much more terrible. Now he's kind of, he's at least straightened up a little bit. But Lee Zeldin, even though I didn't like Alvin Bragg and wouldn't have voted for Alvin Bragg, Lee Zeldin says he was going to dismiss Alvin Bragg, get rid of him, which uh, technically he has the authority to do. But I thought you shouldn't be able to because Manhattanites voted for Alvin Bragg. The solution, if you want to get rid of Alvin Bragg, is to have the voters vote for someone else. It's not for the governor to swoop in like a dictator and remove Alvin Bragg. The same thing in Oregon. I don't like the death penalty, but the solution to doing away with the death penalty is not just to commute everyone's sentences. These people went through a process. They went on trial, presumably, and a jury of their peers convicted them of the crimes, and a judge and a jury sentenced them to death. Until that law changes, she should not be removing the death penalty. So we'll see what the new governor does. Uh, The new governor is against the death penalty, too. But um, the Republican minority leader here is, um, I think, right on the money. Basically, the Republican minority leader says um, that uh, Tim, uh, Tim Knopf is his name said it should be up to voters to decide whether to repeal the death penalty. Did the people of Oregon vote to end the death penalty? I don't recall that happening. This is another example of the governor and the Democrats not abiding by the wishes of the Oregonians. I think he's absolutely right. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Some of the people that are going to be the beneficiaries of this who were awaiting execution include... Christian Longo, who was sentenced to death in 2003 after killing his wife, Mary Jane, and their three children. Bruce Turnage and his son, Joshua Turnage, who were responsible for the 2008 Woodburn bombings that killed police captain Tom Tennant and Oregon State Trooper William Hakem and Jesse Compton, who killed... I, I can't even... I can't even repeat the whole crime. It's so objectionable to me as the father of a small child. I can't even repeat the nature of how he killed a little girl. Um, the, they don't kill a lot of people in Oregon in terms of the death penalty. The, um, the prior governor essentially opted to stop enforcing the death penalty, and they, the state legislature has refined the death penalty to only be for a handful of crimes. Basically, the only crime that you can get the death penalty for in Oregon is aggravated murder. Uh, That is essentially um, murder of children younger than 14, murder of law enforcement officers, terrorist attacks that kill at least two people, and prison killings carried out by someone who had previously been convicted of murder. So if you're in prison, you're uh, serving a prison sentence for murder, and you kill someone else, then you're eligible for the death penalty. Those are the only people that are eligible to get the death penalty for. And I think if Oregon wants to change that, Oregon should vote. That's what the law says. That's what the Constitution says. It's not for Kate Brown to take it upon herself to um, to change that whole thing. 800-848-9222 if you want to weigh in. Uh, that's 1-800-848-9222. What do you think? Maybe you agree with Kate Brown. Maybe you think she's doing the right thing. I don't. Uh, I think it, there's a reason there are laws. 
There's a reason that we elect governors. There's a reason that we elect legislators. It's not to have governors act like dictators. Tell me what you think. Eight open lines, seven open lines if you want to comment. Larry is on Long Island. He has a comment about stressful jobs. Hello, Larry. Frank, and I'm, I'm dead serious. I have been horrified, <clears throat> excuse me, for years watching how a segment of the society, when they go to grocery stores, behave with cashiers, but especially with people who work behind the deli counter. There is something about grocery store patrons that turn them into just animals, talking down to people, just horrible, horrible people. I think those are stressful jobs because I've talked to a few cashiers and deli people and they go, yeah, this is just, I mean, some people are just so so horrible. You know, I've noticed that same thing, too. Why do you think that's the case? I think when people, assert, like I say, a small segment, hopefully, they want to feel like they're big shots. And the only place they can, they, can, they can be big shots and talk down to people is in a grocery store. Yeah, maybe you're right, because I have noticed the same thing. Um, more so at delis than at grocery stores. I feel like um, if you're one of the people at a grocery store these days that makes the decision to use a, a, a person instead of one of the self-checkout automated things, then maybe you're likely to be someone that actually has some respect for people. But I have noticed this at delis. And I, I remember I was in line. This is about 10 years ago, but it's so stuck with me. I was in line behind a guy and he knocked over a whole plastic container of freshly baked little mini muffins. And I, because it was a big mess, I didn't know this guy, but this, um, the, I started picking up the muffins. And I assumed the guy that knocked them over would also do the same thing. And the guy just turns to the cashier and says, oh, yeah, you can't serve these anymore. And he walks out. And I'm picking up these muffins. The the deli staffers are looking at the muffins and the guy that just walked out dumbfounded. And they say to me, because I'm picking up the mess that this guy made, they said, uh, did, did you, do you know that man? I said, no. They said, well, well, how come he's not cleaning this up? I said, I don't know, but someone's got to. And I just, I just remember being so taken with the level of disrespect that you could have for another person to just assume that that person's going to literally clean up your mess. I've seen people, in, mostly for me, in grocery stores, like ShopRite. I, I go to ShopRite. Uh, behind the deli counter, I've seen people um, almost wish death on employees because they didn't cut the ham oh the right thickness. Well, they didn't cut, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's insane. People are just... Not everybody. It's got. A, hopefully, it's a small segment of the population, but I, I just, I cringe. I cringe when I see the behavior. I see, and you talking about dropping things. I see people in aisles, just you know, dropping stuff. I've seen people break bottles and just keep moving. Nothing said. I mean, it's just, it's they are they are a privileged part of society when they walk into those grocery stores.
Yeah, uh, you're, I don't understand it either, Larry, but I've noticed that same thing. Thank you. 800-848-9222. We've eight open lines and uh, call for uh, no other reason other than to just give Kenneth something to do. Uh, you know, it's funny. I got a, an SMS text message here, and I'm assuming – I don't know what this was in response to specifically, but I think something we did last hour. And you can always send me an SMS text message at 8168-MORANO. This person writes, the older I get, the better fascism looks. <laughs> That's very funny. That's very funny. All right. Um, we'll continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Selection by my cousin Natalie in Delicato. Uh, she and my brother Nicholas ha- are celebrating their birthday today. And uh, as a little treat, we told them each of them would get to select some bumper music today. So there you have it. All right, 800 848 9222. That's 1 800 848 9222. Uh, let me say hello to Pete in Wappingers Falls. Hello, Pete. Hey, Frank. I think the most stressful job would be a test pilot. Because you have these people that say, well, the computers say the plane's going to fly. <laughs> but you don't know, right? What if you get up there and they're like, oh, we forgot to hit this one button, right? Wouldn't that be stressful? Like, I could see, uh, you know, that's a very good point. Uh, I could absolutely see that being the case. What uh, I, I don't know where that ranked, if anywhere, on the uh, on the list. But uh, you yeah, know, it makes sense. Makes sense to me. I don't yeah. know what those guys get yeah. paid. You know, usually if you are in one of these high stress or dangerous jobs, if you get paid a ton of money, it does make it a little easier to do that job. But I agree. If you're not sure if um, uh, an airplane that you're taking is safe or not, then uh, you know who, who cares what you're getting paid. To your uh, point, uh, to yeah. your point, Pete. Um, we were talking with Doctor. Guy yesterday, I don't know if you heard what he said, but he was talking about all the people that died in the space program, and it was a much higher exactly. number than I realized—180. Yeah. And the overwhelming majority of them are exactly what you described: people who died in accidents in the testing phase of these different, uh, you know, of these different things. Did the different vehicles to launch? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's a good point, Pete. Yeah. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. I did mention yesterday, and I didn't get to it, that the Golden Globe nominations are out. I've always liked the Golden Globes. 
And I was bummed last year that I don't think they aired them either because of COVID or not enough diversity or not enough or or the Me Too era. I don't know. When whenever anything's canceled now, it's because of one of those three things. It's either COVID, um, it's either diversity, or it's Me Too. Right? I don't remember what category the Golden Globes fell into, or if it was all three of them. So this is going to be the 80th Golden Globes. And Golden Globes, I always found fun, even though it's run by this mysterious organization, like the Bilderberg Group and the Illuminati put together, the Hollywood Foreign Press. Nobody knows who these guys are. Nobody knows how they pick the movies. I have not seen a single one of these Golden Globes. And I'm going to try and see more of them, but honestly, I have I have no time to see anything. Maybe I, I watch one motion picture every week and a half, every two weeks. Um, but there's a number of ones that I'd like to see. The sequel to Knives Out was nominated, uh, and I love the original Knives Out. I watched this not only with my wife, but uh, several of my siblings-in-law on Thanksgiving after everybody went to bed. And that's such a great picture, the original Knives Out. So now I, I don't, I'm trying not to know too much about the sequel because I want to go in fresh. But the sequel, Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, is nominated. That I have not seen anything. None of the dramas, none of the comedies, none of the animated pictures. And I'm going to try and uh, make some headway on this soon. But uh, some of the major nominees are um, Babylon... The Banshees of Inisherin, everything, everywhere, all at once. I uh, I've heard that was very good. I didn't see that. Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, a triangle triangle of sadness, and then the best picture category for drama that includes uh, Top Gun Maverick, which I still didn't see. Everyone says is great. Tar, which I, I don't think I've heard of. The Fablemans. Elvis, which I want to see, and Avatar, The Way of Water. I didn't see the original Avatar. It's on my list of films to see one day. I'm not going to see the sequel, I don't think, because it's just too long, and the first one was long. And I would have to go back and watch the first one prior to seeing the uh, the second one. So did you, did you see the first Avatar, Matt Place? Yeah, I saw it once, like when it first came out. Yeah, were you into it? Not really. You weren't. Uh, yeah, it was just—it's just too much. I think it was at one time the uh, highest-grossing film ever made. So a lot of people were into it. It got critical acclaim, commercial success. Where are you on Avatar, uh, Kenneth? Uh, you don't strike me as really a science fiction guy. I've seen it, but just nah, it wasn't too good. But it's, I, it's I not even really science fiction, right? It's more fantasy. Yeah, yeah. It's it's okay. Yeah. All right. So uh, neither of you have done anything to change my opinion uh, of my plan to see Avatar The Way of Water. I, 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 I have it. I mean, I actually, I think I own it. I think I The original? It. The first one? Yeah, I think I did. All right. Well, I'm, I'm not going to. one of those gonna... movies that I was like, oh, I, I should own it. If you want it, I'll it was that, lend it to It you. was that good? It was good, but it was not. I mean, it's not like I'm running out to go watch the new one. It was yeah. 13 years ago. It wasn't. It wasn't one of those movies like, oh, I really can't wait to there's another Avatar. You know what I am looking forward to seeing, actually? This is an animated film. It's on Netflix. I just read an article about this yesterday. It's, it's nominated for Best Motion Picture Animated. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. And it, this is, it's animated, but it's an adult movie. 
Pinocchio, and apparently it's an allegory for all sorts of things. I love uh, taking public domain characters and using them for different things. I'd like to make my own version of Pinocchio or uh, Humpty Dumpty. I will tell you, ye- yesterday I mentioned how, um, so maybe Carmine, the, the, other, the other animated films nominated are Turning Red, which Debbie Schlussel gave a giant thumbs down to, but I've talked to some actual children and they really liked it. You know, uh, our friends' um, children, I asked them about what they like to watch, and they're very happy to talk to you about it. So, um, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. I saw the first Puss in Boots, I think. That was pretty good. I would watch that maybe with Carmine if he wants to. Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, In You O, and then Pinocchio. Those are the animated films this year. But yesterday, I was telling you that uh, I really enjoyed this Encanto, which was a, le- a big winner in last year's films. This is, again, a Lin-Manuel Miranda animated film. If you haven't seen it, it's very clever. I, I wanted to play you the trailer yesterday in case you hadn't heard it. This was uh, the trailer for Encanto. Many years ago, this candle blessed our family with a miracle. Our house, our casita, came to life with magic. Hola, casita. Roar! Roar! Let's go! In time, every member of our family... Cecilia, up top! ...was given their own magical gift. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I understand you. I'm not super strong like Luisa. The donkey's gone out again. On it! Or effortlessly perfect like Senorita Perfecta Isabella. But, Mama, why am I the only one that didn't get a gift? You're just as special as anyone else in this family. You just healed my hand with an arepa con queso. Casita? What's going on? The magic is in danger. Protect our home. We must protect our family. This is my chance. I will save the magic. Wait, how do I save the magic? I'm losing my gift. Mirabel, the fate of the family is gonna come down to you. I can't do this. Let me help you. The rats told me everything. Don't eat those. Even in our darkest moments, there's light where you least expect it. A lot of stairs. But at least I'll have a friend. Nope, you flew away immediately. Quitter! So I thought it was very good, very cute, very clever. It's a little corny, like a lot of children's movies are. But if you like children's films, especially if you have a child in your life, I do recommend it. Encanto, again, from last year, big winner last year, won Best Picture for Best Animated Picture at the Academy Awards, and it was a big winner at the Golden Globes as well. I recommend it. But um, that, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you your tastes lie in animated films in general. By the way, I was speaking with Murray Sabrin yesterday. He was kind enough to come on this show yesterday. And he wanted me to remind you, and I told him I would, so I will, 
that tomorrow, Friday, is the last day to download his autobiography for free. Uh, Amazon does this thing for memoirs, for autobiographies, that you can download the ebook for free. It's called From Immigrant to Public Intellectual, an American Story by Murray Sabrin. So if you want to download that for free, at least the ebook, you can go ahead and do so on Amazon. The regular paperback version is not expensive. I like the paper versions of books, the hardcovers. So uh, it's only, I think, six ninety nine. So I may spring for that anyway. All right. Last thing I'll mention, and then we will get to your calls. I read this article in the Wall Street Journal, and I was dumbfounded because I like to consider myself – I wouldn't say I'm on the cutting edge of anything. I'm not. I am, I am always fighting the last war, right? I just recently stopped carrying around a pager, right? I am always trying, whenever my wife is asking for gift ideas for friends or family members, I'm always suggesting a fax machine. I'm always asking her if uh, where our fax machine is and if she can fax something. So that's kind of where I am in terms of cutting edge. That being said, I tend to notice trends. I notice them. I don't participate in them, but I notice them. And I read this article in the Wall Street Journal that threw me for a loop. Evidently, armpit hair is back, whether you like it or not. And even trendy razor companies are backing off from the clean shave. And there's this huge article in the WSJ, as John Batchelor calls it about how armpit hair re-sprouted from glossy ads to celebrity underarms and even the cover of Vogue. And in this Wall Street Journal article, it's got this photograph of Julia Roberts. It's an older photo. It's from 1999. And she's got underarm hair visible. And I think it's the most disgusting thing in the world. I think it is a huge turnoff. I will never have a... um, sexual thought of Julia Roberts ever again. I I am all I can see. And and I turned the page just now. All I can see when I hear Julia Roberts name is this photograph of her with underarm hair. Now I think this is absolutely gross, but this article by Rory Satrin in the journal says that when Julia Roberts appeared at the Notting Hill premiere, In 1999, with hairy armpits peeking out from her sparkling red gown, the debate about her body hair trumped any news about the romantic comedy, which went on to become the highest grossing British film of all time. And it goes on, you know, all chronicling the debate about what was going on. Now Vogue, their cover issue features Emma Corrin of The Crown. It's a very popular show, and it's the first to feature a it's the first cover of Vogue to feature a non-binary person on their cover and likely the first to show armpit hair. So the actor who uses they and them pronouns. I am so over this pronoun stuff. I, I'm sorry. I know that sounds dismissive to people that are non-binary or transgender. It's just it's enough. I what it's you know what it is? I'm all for people being whatever they want. I am not for people being plural, right? Meaning, I don't like they and them means more than one person. So it's it's it sounds like it's 
a Borg drone speaking. We are the Borg. Resistance is futile. They and them. Well, what do they want? Who? That person. Well, it's just one person. No, 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 that's them. Ugh. It's too confusing. Just call me Frank. I feel like I'm living in a perpetual who's on first routine because of the use of they and them. But anyway, so um, this actor, Emma Corrin, is joining the growing number of Hollywood people flaunting armpit hair. In Hollywood, you have Miley Cyrus, Janelle Monet, Lords Leon, the daughter of Madonna, who um, my sister actually went to high school with. I don't remember her mentioning anything about lords walking around gym class with armpit hair or anything like that. Uh, in 2019, there was an article in Harper's Bazaar by model Emily uh, Ratajkowski, who's very, very fetching. You know she's voluptuous because I think she's actually rumored to be dating Pete Davidson and only the creme de la creme ever get uh, even a chance at dating Pete Davidson. And Emily Ratajkowski wrote that sometimes letting my body hair grow out is what makes me feel sexy. And she appeared in lingerie with visible armpit hair. And it's now trickling down to the masses. Growing up in rural conservative North Carolina, Jada McKenzie Travis didn't know that refusing to shave was an option. The florist and singer, now 24 years old, had never seen a woman with armpit hair. And a trip to New York exposed her to different gender expressions and inspired her to grow her armpit hair out. And now she sees it as a way to live more authentically. More and more women are doing this. Rachel Gibson, a hair historian in London, quote, In modern history, women have always had smooth armpits in the public eye, so it's hard to undo that. Yeah, I think it should be. But sure enough, look, I, I don't, I'm not judging people, but it's just, it's just not for me. Female underarmpit hair is... A massive turnoff for me. Now, again, there's a lot of things that I don't like. And please, everything I do is a turnoff to just about every female on the planet. So I'm the last person that should sit in judgment of anybody. But I know a lot of people, men and women, are really into body art. I could deal with a tattoo. But if a woman has their whole arms covered in a sleeve of ink, I find that kind of gross also. I just, it's not for me. But uh, I'm curious if you're a man or a woman, have you noticed this trend of visible underarm hair making a, a huge comeback? They say the last time there was this kind of a spike in underarm hair, it was in the 60s and 70s with the second wave of feminism. Up until that blip, the clean-shaven look in America on your underarms has held strong. Retail analysis firm Mintel stated last year that the hair removal market was already on a sluggish trajectory before COVID. And now with COVID, a lot of these women said, we're just letting our hair grow. See, another problem with these lockdowns, these lockdowns, are causing the delay possibly in the JFK documents. We'll have an update on that tomorrow. They are causing award shows to be canceled. 
and they're causing women to walk around with visible underarm hair. Not for me. What do you think? 800-848-9222. For some, armpit hair is a statement. For others, it's simply more comfortable or more efficient, less irritating to their skin. And according to many of those who are taking a stance on body hair, it's as much about hair positivity as it is about autonomy over their bodies. Ugh. Ugh. Not for me. Ron in Michigan, what do you think? Well, Frank, I grew up in, in the uh, period of life where women didn't shave their legs so much. Okay, but there, this is a quick story. This American goes into a bar in, in Paris, and it's hot summer day, and the bar has no air conditioning. And he sees this uh, woman, he thinks it's a woman, waving her arm to, for the bartender. And the drunk says to the bartender, he says, buy the ballerina a drink. And the b- bartender goes and buys the ballerina a drink, and she waves thank you to the, to the American. And the American likes it. And after a few minutes, he says, buy the ballerina another drink. And the bartender buys her an, an, another, gives her another drink, and she waves to the, the American. And the bartender turns to the American. He says, how do you know she's a ballerina? And he says, only a ballerina can lift her leg that high. <laughs> Not bad, Rod. Like, Not bad. I like hairy legs and hairy arms on women. I'm, I'm old-fashioned. Hey, God, God bless you. See, I don't view, thank you, Ron. I don't view this as an old-fashioned thing. I think the old-fashioned traditional approach is a clean-shaven underarm. I don't think I'm off base on that one, but uh, I don't know. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. A guy with some of the best, most famous blue eyes in history of cinema, Paul Newman, was colorblind. I had no idea. He was, um, I learned that on Jeopardy. See, that's why you got to watch Jeopardy. First of all, last night's final Jeopardy, and I want to spoil, yeah, I'm not spoiling anything. The final Jeopardy category was presidential facts. If I, I, boom, I said to Rachel, I'm betting all my money. 
I guarantee you whatever that res- whatever that clue is, I'm going to know the correct response. And sure enough, I did. Uh, two of them got re- – my favorite is when all of the final Jeopardy contestants get a question wrong and I get it right. It very rarely happens. It happens, I'd say, once a month, once a month. But uh, last night, two out of three of them got it incorrect. And the champion, I believe, Sean, he got it correct. Uh, but um, but anyway, I learned that Paul Newman was colorblind. Had no idea. So some people are colorblind. Other people, and I think Brad Pitt falls into this category, are facially blind. There's all sorts of different blocks people have, right? My um, my wife has a very difficult time with memory. We watched um, – uh, we have a conversation – and it's like we never have a conversation. It's uh, it's very frustrating for me. And I think, honestly, it's frustrating for her sometimes. But um, the guy from Memento couldn't form any new memories. The um, guy in Clean Slate, every time he went to sleep, he lo- lost his memory. I have a mental block. Some people are, me- are colorblind. Some people are spatially blind, whatever. For the life of me... I can never remember the difference between Bon Jovi, Billy Joel, and Bruce Springsteen. And sure enough, we're playing this song here, one of the most famous songs in the world, Only the Good Die Young. Happy birthday uh, to my cousin Natalie. See, it's very easy to know who my favorite second cousin is. It's much more difficult with first cousins. I, I mean, it's, there's only three, and I couldn't pick a favorite, but... Natalie's a strong candidate, if I could. But um, she requested this song for her birthday. Happy birthday, Natalie. Happy birthday to my brother, Nick. And so I said to uh, Matt Blaze just now, I said, oh, is this Bruce Springsteen? Now, I've heard this song a thousand times. I know many of the lyrics. But for some reason, no matter how many times I'm told that a Billy Joel song is a Billy Joel song and a Bruce Springsteen song is a Bruce Springsteen song and that a Bon Jovi song is a Bon Jovi song, I still get those three artists confused. I have no idea why. For the life of me, I have... This might be an undiagnosed psychological disorder. This should be in the DSM-6. I I want to be examined by a psychologist or psychiatrist, and not for the normal reasons. I believe this is an acute mental disorder of inability to tell the difference between Bon Jovi, Bruce Springsteen, and Billy Joel. I'm curious if there's anyone else that suffers from this ailment. Because I'm, this is not shtick. I am dead serious about this. You can almost make the argument that because Springsteen and Bon Jovi are both from New Jersey, mm-hmm. that maybe that's why you get confused. And Billy Joel's from Long Island? Billy Joel is from Long Island. Mm-hmm. That is true. But And they their voices, Bon Jovi and and Bruce Springsteen kind of sound alike, though the style of music, Bon Jovi's a little more harder rock than Springsteen. So that I can understand, but how Billy Joel gets lumped in there for you, yeah. I have no idea. Neither, neither do I. And how do you gloss over the Golden Globes that your show, Only Murders in the Building, was nominated? Oh, I didn't look at the television programs. I oh. just looked at the films. Yeah. Uh, Only Murders in the Building, nominated for Best Television Series, Musical, or Comedy, and... Selena Gomez nominated uh, wonderful. for well, Best good. Actress and Martin Short and Steve Martin both nominated for Best Actor. Well deserved. They, they should win every award there is. Well, how? For Best Actor, only one of them can win. Well, they're both deserving. That happens all the time. That happens, uh, you know, that happens regularly where you have multiple 
actors nominated from the same picture. All right, John is in the truck. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. Good morning. Morning. I was telling you, I was telling you, man. Some of the sexiest, hottest girls I've ever known had some hair on their arms. I mean, uh, on under their arms. But this one, the cutest little girl. She was at the boss's niece from Italy. She had this long, soft hair on her arms, her legs, and she was so cute. I want to say her name, but. I don't want to blow yeah, her up. Don't do that. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. And she was like this hippie girl from like Wellesley College. And she was so cute and sexy. And always, and my buddies always made fun of me because I used to say, oh, I love that. It was so sexy. And to this day, when I tell some girls that I, I think it's hot, they, they're like, oh, you know. So, but, John, uh, you know, in I, Europe, I am not disputing. Right. You're, I get it. I get the European thing. I am not disputing that a girl can be uh, very attractive and have hair under her arms. However, all things being equal, that that you know, boss's daughter situation or boss's niece, whatever. Um, all things being equal, if you could have that same girl with underarm hair or without, you take it with underarm hair. Whatever she likes, Frank. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough, John. Yeah, smart man. You're the man. Keep it, keep it up. Keep it up. Hey, You're doing good. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Uh, those of you that are holding, uh, John, Kevin, Ed, we'll get to you. And uh, the rest of you, you're out of luck. 800-848-9222. A lot of stuff to get to next hour. And uh, we're going to talk gambling with Roger Gross. We'll also talk with Brian Kilmeade. In our final hour. Until then, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. other side of midnight thank you for listening uh chances are if you're listening at this time you are someone who has a unusual sleep cycle right am i i don't think i'm off base in saying that so uh this article really caught my attention apparently nasa scientists have discovered the ideal length of time for the optimum nap, the optimum length of a nap that will enhance your productivity. And I'm going to share with you momentarily. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. I did want to mention... That now that the holidays are here, it's a pretty important time to be charitable. The old 
cliche goes, and like I think many cliches, it's actually true, that it is better to give than to receive. I think that is absolutely the case. And today we are doing our annual holiday radiothon, Red Apple Audio Networks, in in partnership with the Tunnel to Towers Foundation Season of Hope. It's going to go from 6 a.m. Eastern to noon, and all of the money raised is going to be geared towards bringing hope to America's military first responder heroes and their families. And you don't have to wait until the Radiothon starts at 6 a.m. You can go ahead and make a contribution right now. All you have to do is sign up to donate $11 a month or more at t2t.othersideofmidnightshow.com. That's t2t.othersideofmidnightshow.com. It's a great cause. I am a proud contributor to the uh, Tunnel to Towers Foundation. They do incredible work in terms of getting mortgage-free homes for fallen military service members, and I'm proud to be part of this. If you are interested in hearing the Radiothon, it's going to be quite something. I'm going to be back at uh, 6 a.m., Eastern, and I'm going to be uh, co-hosting the first hour of the Radiothon with our colleague Sid Rosenberg. Now, Sid is going to be in for a rude awakening because the microphone that both he and I use is broken. Now, I don't know what's going on here, but uh, Matt Blaze just came in and threw some... Sometimes throughout the show, you might have heard me all of a sudden sound as if I was far away. That's because the microphone falls. It's um, it's It's kind of a little off-kilted. There's a piece that's loose or something. So um, Matt Blaze just came and taped it down so it's stationary and it's good for my specifications, but uh, you know, Sid's a little taller than me and you know, every host has kind of their own way of where they like the microphone and everything like that. So I don't know how Sid is going to react to having to do six hours of radio or whatever it is with this microphone in the in the way that it is, but he's going to have to deal until it gets fixed. Or, I mean, he could. The other day, this microphone was dismounted entirely, so he could, in theory, use the co-host position. But I don't know. I don't know what he's going to choose to do. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. John in Freehold has been patiently holding. Hello, John. Oh, John. Uh, apparently, his patience met its limit. Let me say hello to Kevin in New Jersey. Hello, Kevin. Yeah, Frank. Uh, I don't know how you do it. You know, I find myself disagreeing with you all the time, and you almost lose me. You almost lose me, and then you drag me right back in. I got the three things you said, the, the tattoos when a woman has them all over their arms, huge turnoff. Mm. The they, they and them, I have arguments with my 25-year-old daughter about that all the time. I say the same thing. It's one person, Lex. It's one person. And but what does she say to them? Hair, what does what your, your daughter say? Well, you know, she went off to college, and, uh, you know, that's, that's a big part of college life. She, she gets so angry with me, she can't even talk to me anymore. All over pronouns? Again, I I, I don't want to... This is very important to people that it's important to, so I'm not trying to 
act like it's dismissive, but I just my big problem is the pluralization aspect of it. Uh, if someone wants to be non-binary, God bless them. I, I just don't see why they have to be plural. Correct. And I can't even say, you know, her or him about anybody anymore because she says to me, how do you know it's her or him? Oh, boy. And I said, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? And she's like, no, it's not that. And I'm like, all right, Lex, I guess I just don't get it. I guess I'm an Archie Bunker of this generation or something. I just don't understand it. But the underarm hair thing, forget about it. Thank God she's not on, on board with that. She is a beautiful <laughs> girl. And I, it's the biggest turn off. I mean, I can't imagine how anybody could be attracted to that ever. What do you make of the fact that it seems to be making a comeback both amongst celebrities and amongst regular women? I think they just want to go against, you know, the norm. I think they just want to be different. It's the whole tattoo thing. I remember as a kid, you know, sailors and bikers had tattoos. Now 12-year-old girls have tattoos. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's if you don't have a tattoo, you're kind of weird now, to be honest with you. You, you know, stand out more. It's so funny that you say that because you know who else made a similar point, someone with a lot of tattoos, that's uh, Ozzy Osbourne. I remember I, I did see a few episodes of that reality show that he was on, The Osbournes, and he said almost verbatim exactly what you just said. One of his children wanted a tattoo, and he's doing one of these things where he speaks directly to the camera, and he said, it would seem to me that if you really want to be special and unique these days, the way to do that is to not have a tattoo because there's so many people that have it. Uh, if Ozzy Osbourne's saying that, then uh, I think that's, uh, that's a pretty good indication that maybe, maybe you would here both right kevin thanks for the call thanks for listening 800-848-9222 that's 800-848-9222 ed is on staten island hello ed hi i called to talk about children's movies but that was like a half an hour ago all right well be, be my guest if you'd like to otherwise in about, uh... in about a year when your son turns around two or three there's a a, a dialogue free movie made in france in the 50s called the red balloon and it's about a little boy who walks through the streets of Paris on his way to school, and this balloon follows him. And kids love it. They, oh. watch, they watch it again and again. I've heard so, about this. Uh, so it's uh, it's French, and it's from the 50s. It's called Red Balloon. Right. And there's no dialogue. So, you, you know, and there's no subtitles. So okay. Kids, so, and it's hard to find. So check your libraries, check Amazon, check eBay. Also... The body hair, yeah. If you talked about female pubic hair, the board would light up. Well, we're not going to do that. Let's uh, even. I have my uh, my limits, Ed. Even at uh, even at the uh, the early, the wee hours of the morning. Well, I went to school. I went. It's just one of those things. He went a little too far. It makes me now not want to take his film recommendation. You know, uh, it's just you, you gotta know your. You gotta know your audience, right? You got to know your your limits. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. A couple of things. I I am going to share with you this ideal nap length. Uh, Also, I think this is really interesting. There are these fake Roman coins that have been authenticated, bearing the likeness of a lost Roman emperor. And the analysis of these coins, which everybody thought were fake, has now reignited the debate over the existence of a third-century emperor named Sponsian. 
S P O N S I A N. I um again, I've always said I'm not an expert in history by any means. I'm a student of history and especially Roman history. I think it's very fascinating and uh and I would love I have a lot of books on it actually that I want to get around to reading, but I know very little about Roman history. All right, I want to learn more, and I've, I love Roman epics, whether they're true, whether they're sort of true. I love Roman epics like uh, Quo Vadis. Oh, love Quo Vadis. Um, you know, uh, you know, Gladiator, even modern epics. You know, but uh, in seventeen thirteen, a cache of Roman coins was discovered in Transylvania, of all places. Right. I guess, uh, you know, Count Dracula needed to make sure that he was prepared in case he had to pay off anyone. And several of these coins bore the portrait of someone named Sponsian. But there are no historical records of a Roman emperor with that name. The coins have largely been dismissed as forgeries for more than a century. And... Uh, Now there's a reanalysis using a variety of physics-based methods, and it has yielded evidence that they might be authentic. This is according to a a recent paper published in the journal PLOS One, P-L-O-S One. So it's starting to look like Sponsian may have been a real emperor. After all, one of the Sponsian coins is now in a museum in Romania. Another is part of uh, a collection at the University of Glasgow. And according to the co-author of this uh, paper, this has been a really exciting project. And we're delighted that our findings have inspired collaborative research with museum colleagues in Romania. Not only do we hope that this encourages further debate about Sponsian as a historical figure, but also the investigation of coins relating to him held in other museums across Europe. So Sponsian or Sponsianus seems to have been an obscure Roman military commander in the Roman province of Dacia an isolated gold mining outpost that overlaps with modern-day Romania. uh, He was most likely active, if he existed, during a critical period of unrest during the 3rd century after the assassination of Emperor Severus Alexander by his own troops, no less. Severus Alexander was killed by his own troops. The Roman Empire was besieged by barbarian invasions, peasant rebellions, civil wars, a pandemic, hat tip uh, COVID, and the rise of multiple usurpers vying for power. So due to the resulting debasement of currency and the economic collapse, by the year 260 or thereabouts, there were three competing states. There was the Gaelic Empire, the Palmyrene Empire, or the, Pal- the yeah the Pal- Palmyrene Empire. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, and the very Italy-centric Roman Empire, caught between them. 
And things didn't stabilize politically until about 20 years later. So Sponsian, if he existed, is so obscure. How obscure is he? He's so obscure that the coins bearing his name are the only concrete evidence of his existence. And at the time of their discovery, the coins were deemed authentic. But doubts about their authenticity grew over time. And in 1868, there was a, a French uh, you know, expert in this stuff named Henri Cohen who declared that the Sponsian coins were very poor quality modern forgeries, possibly the work of a Viennese forger who thought inventing, a, inventing an emperor would better catch the attention of collectors. So Sponsian, by extension, may never have existed. The coins were heavier than usual, with inscriptions that were inconsistent with other Roman coins. Others have argued that there are so many self-proclaimed rulers during this period, and their time and power was so fleeting, that these discrepancies really shouldn't be all that surprising. So I think it's really interesting. I I think what would be great... And, you know, my problem is I, I just I want to do so many different things that I don't have time to do any of these. Right. I think it would be great if someone were to write a novel about Sponsian. I don't know that you could do a, a motion picture because to make a real maybe you do an animated motion picture. But to do a real motion picture, a real Roman epic done well, it costs just a, a fortune. But I think it would be so funny to read a novel all about Sponsian. And if anybody wants to steal this idea, you're welcome to. And it's about this this um, emperor who is so obsessed with being remembered. He, everything that he does in the field of battle, in the field of politics, everything that he does is all about um, trying to – is trying to get – build a legacy. And sure enough, hundreds of years later, people aren't even convinced that he uh, actually did live and did rule. I think that would be a great book. If someone wants to write it, I will be happy to read it, and I'll be happy to put you on this show. You know, it's funny. uh, As far as we know, I'm going to actually put that on my ideas list. Let me write that down, Sponsian. As far as we know, there's only one baseball player in history ever to be struck by lightning during a baseball game. And by the way, he still finished that game. And that player was Ray Caldwell. Now, nobody knows who Ray Caldwell is these days. But I thought I always thought the same thing, that it would be so funny if um, there somebody were to make a movie about Ray Caldwell, but have it so that he got superpowers once he was hit by lightning, right? Isn't that neat? Um, lastly, on the science front, and then we're going to talk gambling and casinos with Roger Gross. Scientists have revived a 48,500-year-old zombie bi- virus that was buried in ice. Now, call me crazy, but you remember all the debate about um, gain-of-function research and things like that? I don't think it's a good idea to be reviving viruses that we have not seen 
in 48,000 years. But sure enough, the thawing of ancient permafrost due to climate change may pose a new threat to humans, according to researchers who revived nearly two dozen viruses, including one that's been frozen under a lake for almost 50,000 years. European researchers examined ancient samples collected from permafrost in Siberia, and they revived and characterized 13 new pathogens that they termed zombie viruses and found that they remained infectious despite spending many millennia trapped in the frozen ground. Scientists have warned about this for a long time, that the thawing of permafrost due to global warming would worsen, um, you know, these situations by freeing previously trapped greenhouse gases like methane. But um, the effect on dormant pathogens is not something I've heard anybody talk about, right? And this team of researchers and from multinational team of researchers, Russia, Germany, France, and they have said that the biological risk of reanimating the viruses uh, is negligible. Well, call me overly cautious. Call me paranoid. Call me a monkey's uncle if you must. And my brother Alexander and his um, longtime companion Marley, they now have a bird. So perhaps a more accurate description would be call me a bird's uncle. Uh, because when I first saw the picture of Flappy, as he call, as he's called, that's what Marley texted me. She said, meet your new nephew, Flappy. So you may not be able to call me a monkey's uncle, but you can call me a, a bird's uncle. So they say this is totally negligible due to the strains they targeted, mainly those capable of infecting amoeba microbes. The potential revival of a virus that could infect animals or humans is much more problematic, they said, warning that their work can be extrapolated to show that the danger is real. So I, I don't know about you. I find this very concerning. If a virus has been dead for, or, or, or dormant for 48,500 years, let's let sleeping dogs lie or let sleeping viruses lie. All right. Uh, as promised, NASA scientists have finally determined the ideal length for a performance-enhancing power nap. How long do you think it is? Any guesses? Um, Matt Blaze, do you have a, a guess? How long do you think it is? 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Why, why do you think it's 20 minutes? Because on Seinfeld, Kramer was sleeping for 20 minutes at a time. Right. You know, I actually tried that, that Da Vinci sleep, where you sleep 20 minutes every four hours. It's very diff- – and it's it's impossible. I mean, I now, tried to a, do a it. A power nap is probably like an hour. Okay. Well, yeah, I think uh, – I think that's probably – Ken, any guesses here? I'll go with 15 minutes. Okay. Well um, – we all know everyone gets groggy around the middle of the afternoon, right? Many of us for that have conventional hours. Now, NASA, which actually has a vested interest in having their astronauts be productive, they have found the ideal length for some midday shut-eye. Military personnel happen to get, you know, get this at all times of day. Maybe uh, you're in transit from Afghanistan to Japan. Maybe you're being punished for doing something stupid. It happens. But we don't always have access to five-hour energy or a cup of coffee. And the best thing to do, and this goes for you if you're driving right now, 
and I do this, I pull over, have your ba- have your battle cover cover you while you sleep for a few minutes. So what's the ideal length? Is it a full hour, as Matt Play said? Is it 15 minutes, as uh, Ken has said, half hour? How long's the proper power nap? Well, now, thanks to NASA, they're not just sending us to space. We now have the answer. And uh, if you can get away with it, when you and I'm a big advocate of napping while at work. I think this tendency that workplaces have developed these days to turn napping into something that people should be embarrassed of or uh, ashamed of is not wise. People need a nap occasionally, often actually, to be a little more productive. So NASA's research showed that naps can fully restore cognitive function at the same rate as a full night's sleep. Think about that. So the space agency found that pilots who slept in the cockpit for 26 minutes showed alertness improvements of up to 54% and job performance improvements by 34% compared to pilots who didn't nap. But 26 minutes might be a little long. Um. Napping does lead to improvements in mood, alertness, performance, reaction time, attention, memory. I try to do this. You know, if I'm ever running ahead of schedule, which seems rarer and rarer these days, I try to uh, duck into, you know, a quiet spot and grab 15 minutes or 20 minutes. And I find it remarkably helpful. But uh, Kenneth is actually more right than wrong. What this scientist, who's a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brock University, Kimberly Coate, with Dr. Coate and NASA suggest, is taking a power nap of between 10 and 20 minutes. You get the most benefit from a sleep cycle without any of the grogginess, or they used to call it sleep inertia, that's associated with longer sleep periods. You don't need to get through all five sleep stages, just the first two. Even just getting to stage two sleep for a few minutes will revive a napper enough to give him or her a new outlook on the day. So if you are driving right now and you're feeling groggy, pull over, sleep for 20 minutes. It is the best thing for you. Uh, If you're at work and you can get away with it and you're feeling groggy, you're feeling like you're having a tough time concentrating, you should feel no shame in sleeping for 15 minutes. I'm a big believer in this. Um, If I ever become borough president of Staten Island, we're going to have the whole borough napping. The whole borough will take a siesta. All right. No rest for the weary in the world of gambling. We're going to talk about gambling with Roger Gross in just a minute. He is an authority on casino gaming. We'll talk about what's happening in Nevada, New Jersey, and New York, just to name a few. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report. Blew up his house too. Down on the 
one of the most interesting communities anywhere in the world. Monopoly City, Atlantic City, New Jersey. I don't know how they do it, but on 48 small blocks, they manage to pack a big punch. A big punch when it comes to gaming, a big punch when it comes to dining, nightlife, drinking, a lot of unsavory uh, you know, uh, activities. It might include drugs, might include prostitution, but there's a remarkable amount of history in those 48 blocks, whether we're talking the Boardwalk, the Steel Pier, some of the best cultural institutions in the world, and it's ever-changing, and it's one of the most fun things to talk about. But we're in for a real treat this week because Roger Gross is the publisher of Global Gaming Business Magazine and the president of Casino Connection International. He knows a lot about the world of casinos, not just in New Jersey, but around the whole country, maybe even around the world. Roger, it is great to talk with you. Uh, thanks for joining me on the radio. Uh, sure. Nice to be on with you again, Frank. Roger, I understand you are joining us from uh, the Silver State of Nevada today. That's right. I, I live in Nevada in the wintertime and Atlantic City in the summertime, so I have the best of both worlds. Where uh, where in Nevada do you live? I actually live in a little town called Boulder City, which is south of, uh, of uh, Las Vegas. Uh, I... So... Uh, it's a great place to live, great community. How long have you been out there? Uh, I've, I've been doing this for about 20 years now, since since we started our magazine out uh, out here. And I came out for a couple of years, and I realized it's very nice in the wintertime, but too hot in the summertime. So, well, we, we're, we're on a lot of great stations out there in Nevada on the Nevada Talk Radio Network. So uh, we have a lot of listeners that we're uh, that we're building out there. Uh, so we definitely great. appreciate the uh, the the update. Uh, remind folks what exactly is Global Gaming Business Magazine? Who's it geared towards? It's geared toward the casino executives and the people who sell things to casinos like slot machines and things like that. We're the trade magazine for the casino industry, uh, even around the world. We we have uh, we have readers in in every country that where there's gaming. So uh, you know, it's it's really the the top uh, trade magazine in, in the business. If I'm working in a casino, whether I'm a dealer, whether I'm a, a manager or a pit boss, a stick man, whatever the case may be. Is it a pretty similar experience working in New Jersey, Nevada, New York, or elsewhere? Or are there a lot of differences from a worker's perspective, depending on where you're working? You know, there's there are nuances, certainly. Um, Atlantic City has a lot of people that come down for a day trip, and they want to win while they're down there. And if they don't, they can kind of get into a nasty, uh, nasty attitude. Uh, in Las Vegas, when they come and they, they play on the Las Vegas Strip, uh, they're here on vacation, and and uh, you know it's much more fun for them to mm. to to be in Las Vegas, and it, you know the attitude of the players is different for sure. 
Hey, why did Atlantic City never, with all the amenities that it has, uh, the waterfront property, the proximity to cities like New York and Philadelphia, why did that not become, post-gambling, a Vegas-style vacation destination? What did they do wrong? Uh, Mostly uh, the politicians' fault. They... uh... They first of all, they they started the regulations uh, very strictly. Uh, you know, they 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 uh, they even regulated the the color of the carpet. You know, that design that you'd have on the carpet. Uh, you know, the the designs you have in a bathroom. I mean, it was it was just over overdone. And then, uh, you know, down through the years, uh, you know, there's been a lot of corruption in Atlantic City. I mean, you know, since uh, casino started, uh, two or three mayors have gone to jail. A couple of mayors have been forced to resign. Uh, you know, our current mayor is, is probably one of the worst we've had the whole time. Uh, so, you know, it's really been uh, been a, a, a difficult time to really develop that stuff. Uh, I mean, there's a, a beautiful piece of land. It's probably the largest piece of land, waterfront land on the East Coast that's currently undeveloped. It used to be the city's former airport that that they could never sell uh, you know now they're they're talking about putting some housing up there there's, there's a, a group that wants to put a little little uh, racetrack in there i mean it's just uh, you know a waste of that beautiful land and uh, they just have never gotten it together you know the state uh, the state uh, officials have been just as bad as the city officials so you know they they've never been able to put one foot in front of the other when it when it comes to being like vegas and, and it doesn't sound like you're terribly optimistic about where things may go in the future for atlantic city no i mean we're we're in a situation uh, government wise in atlantic city with this the uh the state has taken over the city government city finances and they've they've driven the city into uh, half a billion dollars in debt um, over that time, over the past 10 years. Uh, the mayors don't have any control over it. Everything they spend has to be approved by the state. And then, of course, we do have this, this mayor who, who, uh, who's, who's got an ego that you, you just couldn't believe. And he's, he's doing you know, nothing for the city and everything for himself. So uh, it's not, not a good situation politically right now. And you know, I don't know. I can't predict when it will happen. I mean, uh, Governor Christie came into town with some great ideas, and and he just failed miserably. So uh, I don't know anybody anybody who would come into town with good ideas would probably get shot down. If I'm uh, if I'm a New Yorker or uh, somebody that lives in North Jersey, for instance, and I'm interested in gambling, and I'm interested in maybe a long weekend trip somewhere. Anything to be said for choosing Atlantic City over Las Vegas beyond the uh, the closeness uh, of it, or uh, are you always choosing Vegas, all things being equal? Not necessarily. I mean, we've got some great entertainment in Atlantic City. The casinos are are almost at the same uh, level as as uh, Las Vegas casinos. I mean, if anybody's been to the Hard Rock or Ocean casinos, the two newest casinos in the city, you know, that you you could plop them in the middle of Vegas, and then people would enjoy themselves. So, you know, there's still a lot here. I mean, there's there's some great restaurants in Atlantic City. You know, even outside of the casinos, and you know, the 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 myth that it's very dangerous in in Atlantic City is is you know, it's just as dangerous in New York. So, you know, if you're if you're a city dweller and you come to Atlantic City, you'll feel right at home. Interesting. Uh, interesting. Anything new happening casino wise in uh, in either Atlantic City or Nevada? Well, actually, there's an interesting uh, development happening outside the casinos. Uh, the old Showboat Casino was bought by a, a entrepreneur from Philadelphia. And uh, he 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 was on the on show the, last week. Bart Blatstein. Oh, yeah, oh, Bart Blatstein. Right. Yeah. He's done a great job. He did it. 
in the casino area of Showboat. He put in an arcade. He's got a a, a go kart track, and now he's building an indoor water park right on the boardwalk. So uh, he's. I think that's probably the most interesting interesting thing that's happening in Atlantic City right now, and that'll that'll open this summer. So uh, you know, hopefully, you know, that'll bring more families to Atlantic City, and uh, you know, there's still things to do in Atlantic City. Steel Pier is still a wonderful attraction. They've got one of those big uh, Ferris wheel type of things now there, and uh, you know the views are incredible. And uh, you know the beach in Atlantic City is second to none on the Jersey Shore. Mm-hmm. I, I, my and it's free, in, unlike uh, and, and Cape free, May exactly. and other yeah. beaches. Yeah, right. My friends on Long Beach Island will argue with me, but again, you got to pay to get on the beach there. So, um, you know, Atlantic City is, has a lot going for it. Um, you know, and and uh, you know, if you're going to, if it's a choice between going to Vegas or Atlantic City, I'd give Atlantic City a try if you've never been there. What? Uh, where are you in terms of restaurants? If you had to pick a one or two favorite restaurants, doesn't have to be something within a casino, but it can be. Right. What would you pick in uh, Atlantic City? Well, I always pick outside uh, uh, the casinos because, you know, you, you have Same. to go into the casino and pay for parking and things right, like that. But, right. but uh, Atlantic City you know, has some great restaurants. Uh, the Knife and Fork has been around for almost 100 years now, and it's a beautiful old building. Uh, the food is excellent. Uh, the same family runs a place called Doc's Oysters House, uh, which is the best seafood in Atlantic City. So, uh, And then there's a, a small uh, cafe on Atlantic City called 28, uh, on Atlantic Avenue called 2825 that that has, you know, gourmet food equivalent to anything you'd get in New York. One of the things that I think is really exciting, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Roger Gross. He is uh, an expert in uh, all things related to gaming. He's the publisher of Global Gaming Business Magazine. You can learn more about them at ggbmagazine.com. One of the stories in Atlantic City that I think is really exciting is the transformation of Bally's. The new ownership of Bally's is investing. They're putting in all sorts of new things. Um, they, I, it seems like there's a great energy at Bally's right now. Now, as I understand it, the Bally's in Las Vegas is not necessarily owned by the uh, by the same company that owns Bally's in Atlantic City. Is that accurate? And what is happening at Bally's in Las Vegas, if you know? Uh, that's very accurate. Uh, in fact, uh, as you're as we're speaking today, they're rebranding the Bally's in Las Vegas to a horseshoe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's going to be a horseshoe Las Vegas. And, and anybody who knows their gambling history knows the horseshoe in downtown Las Vegas was uh, was always a terrific uh, place to gamble. Um, and that's the true of the horseshoes around the country. It's now owned under the Caesars uh, brand. Um, but the Bally's brand um, is still active. Uh, the, the people who, who run the Bally's in Atlantic City uh, just purchased the operations at the Tropicana. Uh, in Las Vegas, uh, one of the older casinos, and uh, there's a lot of excitement uh, surrounding that because there's a there's a really good chance that uh, the Oakland A's, uh, the baseball team, are going to move to Las Vegas, and they're going to really they're gonna locate. They're going to locate. They're going to build a stadium at the uh, where the Tropicana is. It's going to be a mixed use stadium with hotels and casino, uh, and it, and it will be branded Bally's. So wow, uh, yeah, I, a, I thought that was interesting since uh, Twin Rivers Gaming bought. Bally's in Atlantic City, they then changed their name to Bally's. So for a while, you had a situation uh, now that up until today, I guess, where Bally's Las Vegas was not actually owned by Bally's. That's true. Uh, That's you know, they, they had an exception for that, I guess, for about a couple of years when they had it. But now 
now Bally's is strictly owned by Bally's and, and the horseshoe is owned by, by Caesars. Uh, any any tips that you might offer to players in terms of how they can maximize their comps in either location? I've asked this to a number of casino dealers over the years, and a number of them have different tricks of the trade. But there's very little uniformity in terms of the suggestions that I've gotten from casino dealers over the years. What would you suggest for players, if anything? Well, you know, first of all, you got to sign up for the for the Players Club, and uh, there certainly is a lot of differences between them. I mean, I, I knew a guy at one point; he was trying to put together a website that would compare, you know, how many comps you get at Casino A versus Casino B, and you really can't compare them because there's there's so many different levels, uh, you know, different ways you can earn points, and the points are worth more at one casino than another. But uh, I would just say certainly sign up, and and then just see what you get. Um, you know, in Atlantic City, it's very competitive. Uh, Caesars has just redone their Caesars Rewards program, and uh, a lot of, frankly, a lot of the players aren't really happy with. with uh, you know, they've cut all, some of their benefits. They've cut some of their. They have you know special lounges in the casinos now. There's there's uh, fewer lounges that they can go to at the very high end. Uh, but uh, you know, when you look at uh, casinos like Ocean and Hard Rock, they've been they've been really uh, generous with their comps. So. Uh, you know, uh, I, I would. Uh, it's just a matter of doing some research about who who's giving out more, and uh, you know, just if you, if you go down to Linux, yeah, I would recommend sign out for three or four uh, players clubs, and and you'll start getting solicitations in the mail uh, that you can you can definitely compare apples to oranges. You know, you'd be able to see, you know, if they're going to give you some free food, they're going to give you some uh, some uh, free play on the slot machines, that kind of thing. So. Um, just and just make sure you use that card whether you're playing at the slots or the tables because uh, it all all accrues. Are you because you actually know the odds? Does that mean you're too smart to actually do some gambling yourself? <laughs> well, I, there's things. I, first of all, when you go to gamble, you have to you have to make it an entertainment option. I mean, you're not going to win. That's why they build these beautiful properties. Certainly, you'll win once in a while, but uh, but you got to take it as, as an entertainment thing. So, if you like slot machines, by all means, play slot machines. They're 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 uh, entertaining. The, the slot machines coming out today. Uh, are are just uh, marvels of technology. Uh, you know, they have some of them are 3D, some of them are 4D. You know, some of them the chairs uh, rattle when you when you get a jackpot. You know, the, the tables are are basically the same, but you really should make sure you play the correct uh, games with with the better rules. Uh, you know, blackjack has always been when you have it, when you get a blackjack, a ten and an ace. You know, the, the payoff was always uh, three to two. Well, you know, a few years ago in, in Las Vegas, they started making it six to five, which favors the casino much more so than the three to two payoff. So you want to avoid those tables that play six to five. And, uh, you know, if, if you really like to get excited while you're playing, craps is, is one of the, the funnest games on the casino floor. Uh, it's just a little more complicated to play, but, uh, uh, you know, the, the dealers will help you. Uh, they'll, they'll tell you what to bet and, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's a lot of fun to play those games. So uh, it's just a matter of, you know, approach it as entertainment. I mean, I, I do gamble a little bit. My my games are video poker because you kind of have to think when you when you make mm-hmm. you draw the cards. Uh, I also, you know, love sports betting. 
Uh, and uh, I used to be a baccarat dealer, and I really like baccarat, which is a kind of a uh, you know, kind of a strange game, but but it's uh, very simple to play. I mean, it looks very complicated and highfalutin, but it's it's uh, it's really got one of the best odds in the house. Well, so. I, I play baccarat for that reason, both the odds and the simplicity. It's one of the few right. games that sure. I feel pretty comfortable playing drunk and and and, and winning. <laughs> That's true. But yeah. um, why do? So, so many players get intimidated by Baccarat. I find that when I'm playing Baccarat, I am usually the only non-Chinese player that's playing. Well, that's true. It uh, it's, uh, appeals to Asians very much. So uh, you know, I used to go over to Macau every year, uh, which is uh, right next to Hong Kong, and they have uh, huge casinos. And they have more Baccarat games on the casino floor than they have slot machines. So, uh, and and they just love the game, and and they they, they get very excited playing it. But uh, there's no reason to be in, intimidated just because uh, you know there are people who who don't have the same skin color as you do uh, are playing it. It's just it's a lot of fun, and and again, it's very simple to play, and you have you have good odds. Yeah, um, we are hearing a lot about what might be down the pike for New York City area casinos. The state legislature has voted to have three big casinos open in the New York City area. There's been some talk of Midtown Manhattan. There's been some talk of Coney Island. There's been a lot of other potential venues talked about, even maybe Staten Island. What are you hearing about the possibility of uh, New York City area casinos and uh, who appears to be on the on the have the edge in terms of getting one of these casino deals? Well, in the industry, everybody is convinced that uh, the two existing uh, slot uh, casinos, the uh, the uh, Resorts World at Aqueduct and the uh, Empire Casino at uh, at uh, Yonkers Raceway, are going to get two of them for sure. I mean, there's really been no doubt about that, just because they've already invested more than a billion dollars in each of those properties. So. Uh, you know they've got a head start on anybody else, but it's the third casino that's that's really interesting. We're getting some really great uh, competition there. You know we've seen Caesars talk about a hotel in Times Square. Um, we've we've got uh, Win Resorts uh, uh, partnering with the, the guys that are that are uh, building the Hudson Yards right next to the Javits Center. Uh, and if you've been to, in a wind casino, you know that's uh, it's at the top of the line. Um, uh, you know, and then uh, Steve Cohen out at uh, out at City Field is talking about building a casino next to his stadium out there, and uh, you know that is uh, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. We don't we don't don't really have a sense of which company is, is partnering with him, but a lot of people are are pointing at Hard Rock. Las Vegas Sands, which uh, which owns uh, which used to own the Venetian and Palazzo here in Las Vegas, you know they're looking out on Long Island uh, toward uh, Belmont Park or maybe the Nassau Coliseum out there. So uh, you know there's some really interesting things. We know Bally's is going to get into it because uh, uh, their chairman uh, Sue Kim is uh, is a New Yorker. So uh, you know there's a uh, He's, he's actually expressed to me that he, they're definitely going to get into it, and we haven't heard any details about where they're going. But then there's also one on Coney Island that, that they want to put up that uh, that the Yankees are, are a partner in there. So, uh, you know, there's there's uh, a lot of a lot of competition for that last remaining casino license, and uh, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see when they start, start coming out with the uh, the actual plans for for these casinos, uh, which one is going to win. Last question, Roger, about if these three New York City area casinos come to fruition, 
What does that do to Atlantic City? Will that be a devastating blow because you won't have North Jerseyans and New Yorkers making the trip down to Jersey Shore to gamble? Or is that something that the Atlantic City operators are going to be able to shrug off? Well, you know, it's, it's a, an interesting uh, uh, idea here. I mean, again, if, if those two casinos I first mentioned that we think are definitely going to get a license, I mean, they are already winning over a billion dollars a year. So, you know, they'll they'll uh, move up incrementally, but but it's not really going to hurt Atlantic City that much. And it depends where the third one is. You know, if the third one is in downtown Manhattan, not going to help. Uh, not going to hurt Atlantic City because, you know, people just don't drive to downtown Manhattan. You'll have a lot of Manhattan and visitors uh, coming to that casino, but you're not going to get you're not going to have the people, you know, driving over the George Washington Bridge or, or through the Holland Tunnel to go to New York. You know, they're going to they're going to still right. come down to to Atlantic City. So uh, I, I think it just depends on where it's going to be and, and how, how they're going to market it. Great to talk with you, Roger. Roger Roger Gross, Global Gaming Business Magazine. If you're back east for uh, December 30th, you've got to come to my New Year's Eve Eve party in Atlantic City. Otherwise, hopefully our paths will cross soon. Uh, Okay, absolutely. Thanks, Frank. It's good talking to you again. Thanks, Roger. Appreciate it. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Got on board a westbound seven forty seven. What to do All that talk of opportunities TV breaks and movies Rang true Sure rang true Seems it never rains in Southern this is a catchy song. I have to give my brother Nicholas uh, credit for this one. We uh, we are allowing Nicholas, my brother, and my cousin Natalie, both of whom are celebrating their birthday today, to pick the majority of uh, today's bumper music. And uh, this was a Nicholas suggestion. Not bad. It is not bad. It never rains in Southern California. I can't speak to the accuracy of uh, of this statement, but you never know. Uh, if you want to comment on anything we are talking about, you are welcome to give me a call at uh, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I am uh, eager to become a social media monster, not because I care much about social media, but because of the security, independence, and opportunity that a large social media following offers to someone in either uh, politics or uh, broadcasting or both. So I would encourage you to follow me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. I've learned a great deal about social media. Uh, Pretty much the one big thing that I've learned 
is that no one is ever happy about anything. Okay. I think if you were to listen to uh, this show, uh, compare it to all of the other shows on this station uh, during the week, we discuss politics less than any show on the station. Yesterday, for instance, we did a total of one, one segment involving electoral politics. And yet, I got a tweet at Frank Moreno when I posted the link to yesterday's show. Marianne tweets at me, Frank, a little less politics and a little more fun talk. What? After all, it's in the middle of the night. I want to be clear. There was a total of one segment having to do with electoral politics. Meantime, uh, I'm there. Every time I do do a segment on pens or glitter or uh, underarm hair, there are those that, or, or uh, you know, a story about my Uber driver. There's uh, there going to be those that say, "Oh no, we listen to this station because we want politics." Only in the world of social media can it be so readily apparent that you can't please anybody about anything. So there's that. Uh, It is interesting. Also, uh, aside from my brother Nick and my cousin Natalie, a number of other interesting people celebrating birthdays today, including actor Don Johnson. Don Johnson from Miami Vice and from that film that I referenced earlier, Knives Out. He's great in that picture. Celebrating his birthday today, 73 years old. Guy looks pretty good for 73, but frankly, the guy looks pretty good for any age. In the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I have actually been inundated with a whole bunch of people reaching out to me with questions about cryptocurrency in the aftermath of the arrest of the head of FTX, uh, Sam Bankman Freed. And uh, I have uh, no idea what to tell them. So on Tuesday, we're actually going to reassemble a cryptocurrency panel. We're going to get together a panel of cryptocurrency experts, and we're going to give people uh, an opportunity to learn and to ask questions about what exactly is happening in the world of cryptocurrency. Because 
I have no idea. I mean, look, um, Bernie Madoff ran a scam with real money. Does that mean that um, does that mean that real money is valueless? No, of course not. So that's that. All right. Um, Watching a couple of other stories. Hey, one thing that was sad. And I was just listening to the uh, news at the top of the hour and they uh, they cover this. A fellow by the name of Stephen Twitch killed himself, evidently. I know nothing about this person. I never heard of this person until that he that he uh, until he died, unfortunately. But evidently, this has reignited a debate over mental health and about um, how people who are seemingly very happy on the outside may be hiding something much more much more dangerous and you know we do regular mental health segments but it's very very sad and um evidently the new york post is reporting that the producer of the tv show ellen which i have to say i didn't realize that was still on the air i thought it was uh, i thought it was done but the producer warned the uh staff about mental health in this um in this video that has resurfaced while Twitch was alive, uh, Matt, I was listening to you tell somebody about Twitch. Who who, yeah. who was this person? Well, Twitch was known more before he was on Ellen as a dancer choreographer. He was on um, that TV show, so you think you can dance, uh-huh. and he came in second place. Then from there, he was a he was a judge. He was a fill-in judge. He was very big in the dance and that dance world. His wife was a dance pro on Dancing with the Stars. So he was very involved in choreography and dance and then became the DJ on the Ellen DeGeneres show, which is not on anymore. It is, it is off. It is off. It is off now. Mm-hmm. I think last year it ended. So he was very popular, and he was like, like one of those fun-loving guys, very positive. Um, he was a mostly hip-hop um, freestyle dancer was where, where he came from. But then on, you know, So You Think You Can Dance, they do all styles of dance. And he came in second. Mm. So he was naturally just a good dancer anyway. What do we know about the circumstances involving the situation here? Is there any speculation about uh, what might have been weighing on him or what he might have been dealing with? No. What I saw and read was that he went to a hotel, which was 15 minutes walking distance from his home. Right. I saw that. And that the... He didn't check out, and they sent the maid to his room, mm. and she was the one, which I would assume that he didn't want his wife or his kids to find him in their home. And, and who knows uh, what was going on with him and why he decided to take his own life. And they, like we always say, you, you never know right. what's going on with somebody who seemed to have the world. Yeah, I mean, this guy was a popular, he's a choreographer, he's a dancer, and he was DJing on Ellen. If you ever watched the Ellen DeGeneres show... I don't think I have, no. In the actually. last, I don't know how many years that he was on it, you know, Ellen had this whole thing about she would dance. Right, and, and right, I have seen dance, her come out and dance. little dance true. thing. So she would always talk to Twitch because he was a popular guy on television and just popular with dancing and music. So it's one of those things where everybody goes, oh my, Twitch? Twitch killed himself? Mm. It's just surprising. I guess we'll find out yeah, what happened. Uh, you just never know. I mean, there's um, yeah, obviously the um, the situation involving Naomi Judd got a lot of attention. And now uh, that her her husband is revealing 
a lot of things that uh, the, the final moments leading up to uh, that whole situation. So uh, the point is, you really just never know. Hey, coming up in about uh, 20 minutes, not only will we do the thousand dollar minute, but we're going to we're if you're new to the show, we give you an opportunity to um, win a thousand dollars if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. But you will hear direct from the gentleman that bought my lunch yesterday a wonderful uh, Chilean sea bass that I had. Brian Kilmeade uh, will be here. We'll get his take on the day's events. But um, just going back to this issue of stress, right? It's a theme that we've touched upon a few times today. One, in terms of the stressful jobs. Two, in terms of the uh, toll that stresses can take on your mental health. Obviously, mental health reaches the breaking point when we're talking about suicide. I came across an interesting article um, in, I think it was in an Axios newsletter originally, about rethinking stress and high blood pressure. Because, look, there's things that stress a lot of people out. I looked at a photograph of myself from two years ago. I had almost all gray, uh, excuse me, almost no gray hair two years ago. Almost none. And so um, then for the better part of the last year and a half or so, I've had sort of a single gray streak, almost like a... um, almost like a Marvel villain or Tulsi Gabbard, right? My wife turns to me on Saturday because we, we don't really get to spend much time together during the day. And she looks at me and she said, you know, your, your hair is going all gray. You're not, you don't just have a gray streak anymore. You have gray hair. And um, that was kind of a wake-up call. And I will tell you, now part of it is genetics. My mom, I think she was totally gray by the time that she was um, 30. So I'm not quite as gray as my mom was. And um, my dad still barely has any gray hair. So I'm sort of in between them. Uh, And so maybe there's nothing, maybe it's all genetics, right? Quite frankly. But I don't think so, right? I think everything, I like stress, honestly. I don't want to say I like stress, but I need stress as a part of my life. I feel like stress is a motivator, It's a motivator to do a great radio show. It's a motivator to take everything seriously that I have in life. It's a motivator to kind of keep me focused on sometimes I feel like uh, I'm one of those people you would see on The Tonight Show back in the day juggling 30 different plates simultaneously. And you just make one wrong move and all these plates come crashing down, you know, Um, and that's kind of the way I feel sometimes. But doing this radio show, raising a son, being in a marriage, trying to pay bills, being a homeowner, doing all these other extra projects that I always uh, get myself involved in, whether it's something totally frivolous and fun like New Year's Eve Eve, or whether it's something much more uh, substantive like, uh, you know, advocating for political reform, working for things like nonpartisan elections, ranked choice voting and the like. I believe that it has certainly contributed to an excess number of gray hairs. And I think that's the case for everybody. You have a hectic job, a a tough marriage, rebellious children, a dwindling bank account, and it's probably not raising your blood pressure in a medically meaningful way, according to the latest research. Rather than everyday stresses, like the ones that I just described, the real culprits when it comes to high blood pressure are genetics, 
and poor habits that are often linked to stress, like overeating, smoking, hitting the bottle. So I I, I do get my blood. uh, I give blood regularly. I was going to go last week, but my son came down with the flu. But uh, I've been very lucky in that I haven't had an issue with high blood pressure of late. But, you know, seven or eight years ago, I did have an issue with high blood pressure. And chances are it wasn't because I was stressed. I mean, maybe that was a small factor, but chances are probably it was because of overeating, drinking too much, and unhealthy habits. So they prescribe certain regimens like stress reduction, relaxation techniques, biofeedback, and they do that to reduce blood pressure. But the new research shows this isn't really effective in lowering blood pressure in ways that confer health benefits. Nearly, This is an important thing because nearly half of the adults in this country have hypertension, high blood pressure, half. And only 24% of them have diagnosed, only 24% of those that, uh, that have been diagnosed with this have it under control. So that means there's a lot of Americans out there that have blood pressure that is at problem levels and that is not being reined in. So there are studies that have shown uh, population-wide blood pressure elevations during the COVID pandemic. The rises, according to doctors, were modest and likely related to people getting less exercise, eating poorly, drinking too much, and seeing their doctors less often. Um, Hiroshi Gatanda is an internist at Cedars sinai Medical Center in L.A., and um, they said that our expectation was much worse. They led this large-scale study of hypertension during the height of the pandemic. And this doctor's study showed that patients measured their blood pressure less often during the first eight months of the pandemic and that their readings were slightly higher than before the outbreak, but the differences were smaller than expected. So many patients actually saw their blood pressure readings improve during the pandemic, probably because they weren't consuming as many salty restaurant meals. That was one of the theories uh, at Wild Cormel um, from uh, Samuel Mann, who's a hypertension specialist. What he said is that it's a medical myth that chronic stress causes hypertension, job stress in particular, who reviewed dozens of studies on the topic and found no meaningful correlation. Isn't that wild? I mean, that flies in the face of everything we've heard my whole lifetime. You hear stress and high blood pressure, stress, high blood pressure. This data suggests that it's not quite meaningless but it's almost meaningless. And um, he's got this new book out. Maybe we'll invite him on. It's called Hidden Within Us, A Radical New Understanding of the Mind-Body Connection. Yes, stress and emotional distress can transiently increase anyone's blood pressure. However, decades of mind-body research have failed to confirm that they cause sustained hypertension, or that stress reduction and relaxation techniques lead to sustained blood pressure lowering. The medical community hasn't completely dispelled 
the stress blood pressure link yet. So uh, there was a separate study on blood pressure levels during the pandemic led by someone at the Cleveland Clinic, and um, they reached similar conclusions and and they also cited emotional stress as a popular, uh, excuse me, as a possible factor. The American Heart Association, they're saying that the link between stress and high blood pressure is still being studied. So while everyday stress doesn't cause chronic hypertension, things like um, this gentleman, man, he says things like repressed emotions from childhood upheavals and other traumas can. But work stress, he's saying that's not the cause of your high blood pressure. Downing um, a fifth of liquor every day and eating Doritos because you don't have time to go out and get a more balanced meal, that could be what's going leading to stress. So uh, it's an interesting book. I'm going to pick it up, and maybe we'll invite this gentleman on the show. You want to comment on this, you can. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Jimmy on Staten Island. Hello, Jimmy. Good morning, Frank. You and your beautiful family. A blessed Christmas and a joyous, prosperous New Year. Thank That's you. number one. You're welcome. And number two, um, yes, I feel sorry for this gentleman that committed suicide. You know, you, you never know what sideshow is walking alongside you. However, Robin Williams had it all. And uh, to get back at the wife for some odd reason, he decided to hang himself with his belt in his garage, if you remember that. Yeah, my understanding of that situation was he had a terminal illness that was ultimately going to lead him to lose control of his mental and physical faculties. Uh, so it wasn't just uh, that he had a dispute with someone. He was he was going to die. He had uh, something and Louis body, which was oh. um, going to cause him to essentially lose his mind. And he didn't want to go through that process, as I understand it. Okay, well, thank, you know, live and learn every day. But thank you for that. And uh, have a blessed evening. Thanks, Jimmy. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Speaking of work stresses, so we're at this lunch yesterday, and who's there but the greatest guy in the world, uh, I mean that, Congressman Peter King. And, um, uh, you know, really, I wish we had uh, 100 more members of Congress like Peter King. And he's such a great guy. And even when I – we would frequently disagree on foreign policy because his approach is a little bit more what you'd call traditionally hawkish – my approach was a little bit more um, – I hate this term, but what some people would call isolationist. And so we would debate about foreign policy uh, frequently. But he was always such a great guy. He was very – I find the guy impossible to dislike. And in terms of a guy that delivered for his constituents time and again, there was nobody better than Peter King. Also, he um, was a real independent. You know, he had no qualms about criticizing his own party, working across the aisle with Democrats, whatever the case may be. And so he's making cover. He's uh, he, we, we're going to get into this with Brian Kilmeade in a, in a, in a bit. But he is, um, I think, feeling bad for me that I'm getting roasted at this lunch yesterday. I mean, around the table, I'm getting hammered, hammered. So Pete is trying to make conversation. Right. And kind of get me included in the conversation in a non roasting way. And he says, uh, hey, uh, Frank, how are you doing with all that uh, gangster stuff that you do? And uh, I said, well, I'll be honest with you. I really don't do much of it on the air. 
because uh, we we have a podcast for that, and I encourage people to listen to the podcast called The Racket Report. He says, you don't do it on the air at all. And I said, no. Um, you know, I really just I will play a promo from the podcast and encourage people to listen to it if they want to hear more. And then, sure enough, our boss, John Katsimatidi, says, no, 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 no. I heard you yesterday. You were going on and on about the Kansas City mob. I said, John, it was just 90 seconds. And uh, and then someone else remarked, yeah, but it was a long 90 seconds. So I couldn't catch a break at this lunch yesterday. That being said, I figured if I already got uh, lambasted enough for um, for promoting this uh, Racket Report podcast, let me do it again. The My guest on the latest edition of the Racket Report was Gary Jenkins, a longtime police officer in Kansas City who investigated the mob and a whole bunch of other things. We had a lengthy discussion about Vegas, about mob influence in Vegas, and about um, Kansas City's role in that whole situation. Here's a clip from the latest edition of The Racket Report. I'm wondering if you could sort of give us a thumbnail sketch of how exactly the FBI's use of wiretaps did end the mob domination of these Las Vegas casinos. Well, it started off with we had a little uh, inner uh, inner mob war. Uh, some a group of young Turks were wanted to, to move in on the ruling family, the Sabella family, and, and they started stalking each other. And and one brother was killed, one of the Spiro brothers was killed, and and then another guy his, he disappeared, and then they found his body, and it was uh, evidently he had been tortured. And then there was a bomb went off, and and it was kind of a it was like a a warning bomb. And so we see this going on, and, and uh, like my unit, we're out on the streets all the time. We start seeing, like, some of the people from the Savella family prowling around the joints, just driving around, maybe running little surveillances, like, on some of the places that the Spiro brothers would be. And so we're seeing this, you know, kind of stalking at each other and vice versa. And, and, and we're kind of in the middle of this, and, and so the Bureau ends up, We'd had several bombings by this time. We'd had a couple, three murders, and they put a bug inside of a Savella headquarters restaurant. It's like in, in the movie Casino, they made it look like it was in a corner store, but it was actually in a little pizza restaurant run by Rossi Strada, and the Savellas <laughs> felt safe in there, and they knew him, knew the owner. He was from the neighborhood. So they put a, a bug in there, and they – they always sat at the same table, a little banquet in the back, and they would meet people back there. And there was an informant that said they would have dirty conversations back there. So they they were hoping, the Bureau was hoping, and we were too, that they would pick up information about some of the plotting to kill these Sparrow brothers. And maybe we could either catch them in the act or, or make a case on them or, or be there when they showed up and they had guns in their car and you could you know, create, make that conspiracy so that's a portion of my conversation with Gary Jenkins. If you want to hear the whole thing, you can go to my Facebook page. I've linked it on there, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Or you can just search the Racket Report and hit the subscribe button. Uh, we get into how law enforcement puts these cases together, how they catch gangsters, the level of cooperation between the FBI and local law enforcement or lack thereof, what mob pictures are realistic, which ones aren't. It was really a fascinating discussion, uh, very different from a lot of the conversations that I've had. Now, yesterday, I taped an interview with a guy who was a gangster's gangster. I don't want to spoil it for you now, 
because if you hit the subscribe button, that will automatically get, you know, the podcast downloaded to your phone. This is a guy, not going to tell you who it is right now, save it for next week when it's posted, but this is a guy who killed his own brother-in-law and was sentenced to three days in prison for it. How does that happen? We get into it. The only way to hear that is by subscribing to the uh, Racket Report podcast. So uh, you could probably, if you follow this stuff, tell who I'm talking about already, but do check it out. I recommend it. Uh, so you could uh, just listen to it by going to Facebook.com slash MoranoFan or search on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, whatever, The Racket Report, and it should come right up. If you want to leave us a nice five-star review and a nice comment, That'll help other people find the podcast as well. So we'd certainly appreciate that. By the way, speaking of the media, before we get to Brian Kilmeade, my wife is uh, a journalist. She, you know, there's two things that we don't have a lot of in the Morano household. We don't have a lot of time. We don't have a lot of money. Okay. So um, a lot of, and it's kind of contradictory because you need to spend time to make money. Right. So, my wife works two jobs. She's a, a journalist. She writes for a newspaper. Uh, and she also is a, a writer for a government watchdog group. So she basically works a full work day every day. And then on top of that, she freelances for this newspaper. But she's a, a, a regular freelancer. She does all sorts of reporting for them. And she did this lengthy interview. I'm not going to say who it's with. Um, but she does this length, it's about real estate, right? And she does this lengthy interview with somebody that was integral to this article that she wrote about, you know, some real aspect of real estate on Long Island. I don't recall the particulars. And she spent a lot of time with this guy over an hour, as I understand it. Additionally, the newspaper that she works for sent a photographer to this guy's property to take photos. And I woke up yesterday in the afternoon. My wife was very kind to let me sleep. It's been a stressful week because we have no babysitter because Carmine's got the flu. I wake up yesterday. I go downstairs and my wife is visibly angry. She's at her desk. She's in a huff. And she's clearly, you know, stressed. And I said, you know, what's the matter? She begins to tell me about this situation with this guy. And she said, this guy just called me and he doesn't want to be featured in the article anymore. And she said, I spent an hour talking to this guy, interviewing this guy. I incorporated his quotes into this article and they sent a photographer to the house. This guy's the linchpin of this article. I said, why doesn't he want to be mentioned? Why doesn't he want to be quoted? Why did he spend all that time with you? And then... Tell you he doesn't want to be mentioned. He didn't say. He said. She said. I asked him repeatedly. He doesn't want to be in the article. And um, she said, I'm going to have to rewrite this whole article now and find someone new that fits that profile. And she said, Did that ever happen to you? When if someone pre if you pre taped an interview with someone and they said uh, that you don't want to they don't want to be aired anymore. I said, Absolutely not. I would never give them the option. I, if they're taping an interview with me, we are airing that interview uh, with very few exceptions. I mean, but um, I was I felt so bad for her. And I just don't know what goes on in people's brains 
why would you take an hour of your time, more than an hour of your time, because he then had a photographer come to his property and take photos, and then all of a sudden decide, oh, no, 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 we, we don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I mean, you talk about being inconsiderate and being, um, you know, somebody that uh, has very little care for anybody else's time and money because, you know, she gets paid for writing these articles. It, it's that guy. Um, so if you're ever approached by a newspaper reporter or any person, why don't you think about whether or not you want to be in the article first before agreeing to do the interview. I don't think that's too much to ask. That's my uh, two cents worth of wisdom to you today. All right, Brian Kilmeade uh, joins me next, uh, but first we're going to give away $1,000. 800-848-9222. Be the seventh caller, and we're going to give you an opportunity, I should say, to win $1,000. If you are the seventh caller, then you will get to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. The guy yesterday came very close. He got, I think, seven right. And if you can do it, if you can get seven trivia questions right in 60 seconds, you will win $1,000. You can go ahead and call straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. selections of my brother Nick and uh, my cousin Natalie, because it's their birthday. And um, this is actually not one. This is one I've been trying to get played for a while. It's called You Make Love and Easy, and it's by a terrific artist called Natalie Blue, who is actually, I just learned this, my sister-in-law. Now, I didn't just learn that she's my sister-in-law. I learned that our relationship means that she's not just my wife's sister-in-law, but mine as well. Meaning, she's married to my brother-in-law. So my wife's brother, this is his wife, Natalie Blue. A great singer. She sang at our wedding, and uh, forget about it. She was, it was, people thought they were getting a live concert performance. This song's available on iTunes. It's called You Make Love and Easy. I think it would be a great story in, if, um, if, uh, it became such a big hit because of our show. So you could download it on iTunes. You make love and easy. Great song. But, um, I, you know, John Katsimatidis was telling me in Greek, there is a word for that, for your spouse's in-law. But in English, we don't have one. So in English, your wife's brother-in-law or your wife's sister-in-law, that's your brother-in-law or sister-in-law as well. It doesn't seem fair. It seems like there should be another title. I'm not looking to create additional distance because Natalie's obviously a great singer and a wonderful person. It just seems like there should be something else there. All right. Uh, Without further ado, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. 
Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Uh, let us say hello to Edward in New Jersey. Hello, Edward. Good morning. Good morning. Edward, you familiar with the game, I take it? Yes. Uh, actually, I was listening yesterday, and uh, I would have guessed the first day of the week was Monday. So uh, I'm not sure how far I'm going to get with this. Okay. Well, no. Let's, I mean, uh, we, we, that would have been very <laughs> controversial. All right. Uh, so if you're ready okay. to go, let's get started. What two colors are found on a zebra? Black and white. Name a country in Africa. Kenya. Who is the current pope? Pope, uh, oh man. See? Starts with F. Francis. Who has the largest signature on the Declaration of Independence? John Hancock. Who wrote The Catcher in the Rye? Salinger. Who did Mike Tyson lose the heavyweight championship to in 1990? Foreman. Uh, I'm sorry. No, it was Buster Douglas. Buster Douglas, quite an quite an upset, but um, you you bounced back. You got you got stuck on that Francis situation, which happens, Edward. Yeah. Um, I'm going right. to put you on hold. Give Kenneth your information, and uh, meantime, we want to welcome a guy that's always a special guest, but an extra special guest today because his uh, wallet was considerably lighter yesterday. After uh, taking our whole, at least not our whole staff, but at least the important members of our staff to lunch, I am pleased to welcome New York Times bestselling author, co-host of Fox and Friends and nationally syndicated radio talk show host, Brian Kilmeade. Brian, it was great to see you yesterday. Thanks for lunch. It was awfully nice of you. No, it was good to see you resilient. You adjusted your your sleep schedule in order to be uh, engaging during lunch. You could have phoned it in and just... uh, you could have uh, you could have phoned it in and ju- and just you know sat there silently and tired and uh, and all of a sudden uh, you were the the life of the party the what? life of the lunch you know and a lot and a certain lawyer is is very responsible for that <laughs> you know it, that's an interesting way to put it because I thought at some point midway through that you had just told everyone else that this was the roast of Frank Morano because I was really being put through the ringer there at certain points there Brian. You're not exaggerating. At, at one point, I thought to myself, Frank's not having a good time. <laughs> I, I mean, he might store out. Because evidently, everyone listens to every minute of your show. It's true. And you find it's yourself true. justifying every word while trying to scramble to remember what they're talking about. <laughs> That's right. I'm trying so, to think. Because you're like me. Like When you get off the air, some people bring things up and think to myself, did I say that? Yeah, I no, I'm trying to think. And uh, uh, John at one point brought up something that I think happened a year ago. And I, I said, no, I don't think that happened. But, but it was a lot of fun. Thank you uh, for that. It was a great, not only a great meal, but a great camaraderie building um, exercise. L- let me get your take on... On where we are with uh, Elon Musk and uh, and Twitter, he is somebody who um, kind of fancied himself as a champion of free speech. Now uh, the uh, the kid that was tweeting about tracking his jet is apparently shadow banned, and uh, there's a big controversy about whether or not Elon Musk is trying to suppress free speech in certain areas. How do you think the Musk uh, leadership of Twitter is going so far? 
Well, I, I like most of it. I saw I saw the problem you you have with it. I, I read about that story. The guy's uh, tracking, stalking. So he basically uh, banned him, shadow banned him. So I, I think that he needs he needs to set up a. It's a private company now. So set up a criteria. I mean, let's just set. It, I mean, instead of winging it every day and open yourself up to all these type of criticisms. Take a step back, set up a criteria, set up whatever you see, an algorithm with supervision, and and start doing this because every day your enemy is going to be looking to to talk about how bad he is and is is uh, the agents that feel as though he's helping the world with free speech are going to make excuses for him. So he's got to come up. I mean, this guy literally blew up the company before he even officially took it over. He said, if you don't get an email by a Thursday, you're fired. And then told everyone, if you don't want to work hard, please leave now. So he got to the place. And then he's exposing internal emails. Mm. And I think it benefits the country. But I just hope he knows what he's doing because when he does this with his stalker and they got pictures, he took a picture of him. Uh, he tweeted out, any account doxing real-time location information of anyone will be suspended. As if it is a physical safety violation. This includes posting links to sites with real-time information. Posting locations someone traveled to on a slightly delayed basis isn't a safety problem, so is okay. Last night, a car carrying, um, it says Little X in Los Angeles, was followed by a crazy stalker thinking it was me, who Mm. later blocked car from moving and climbed onto the hood. Legal action is taken against Sweeney and organizations who supported harm to my family. So that's clearly a threat. How it fits into free speech is a great question. There is some increasingly louder talk about an immigration deal, a a bipartisan immigration deal led by the um, newly independent Kirsten Sinema, which would include legal status for the Dreamers, a whole lot more money for border security and uh, hiring of more Border Patrol agents. One, do you think there is going to be a deal? And what do you think of the framework of this deal from what you're hearing about so far? I don't hear anything good about it. I mean, it's not money and agents. It's a complete philosophy on how you apply for asylum. Ecuador, El Salvador, Brazil, whatever, Venezuela. I mean, you're, they're just walking into our country and applying. We don't have the facilities for it. There's no infrastructure at the border. You've got to be able to apply in the country you're in. There's got to be massive policy constrictions. It's not just a matter of getting more men and women in uniform, getting more Jeeps. I would, you got to finish the wall. you got to put up these containers. I mean, the fact that they're fighting to get the containers down shows a lack of seriousness. I don't know if everyone knows what's going on in Arizona. They're so frustrated with the wall being stopped even though it's paid for. They took these huge uh, shipping containers, and they stacked them on top of each other and welded, doors, welded, uh, welded the door shut. And they've made a makeshift barrier. So, that, so now they're being sued by the federal government saying that that's bad for the environment. It's hard for law enforcement. And it's uh, now it's on an Indian reservation, some fiction that's brought up. So when you're suing to get rid of a barrier, don't tell me to buy into the you care about border security. So Governor Ducey, who's outgoing, uh, sadly, and got to turn over to a Democrat, is fighting back. But I'm sure this new Democrat is going to go, sure, I'll open up these borders. So I, I'm frank, I'm really down on it. Mm. Uh, well, I, it seems to be uh, that we're, you're in the majority on that one. Um, real quick, the uh, there's been a very hyped announcement from former president and uh, current presidential candidate Donald Trump. You are in the know. You are juiced in. You have sources that uh, that people can't even imagine. Any insight into what this Donald Trump announcement is going to be today? 
Uh, I think it's going to be some type of private announcement about a way with his NFT or something like that. Name, image, and life. I'm not sure. But I think it's less political, mm -hmm. more something private, investing, truth social. That's what I hear. Well, okay. Well, that that will be kind of anticlimactic. So he's not a, a yeah. not uh, not launching, a, you know, not announcing a running mate or anything crazy like that. That would be nuts. No, okay. Uh, because I think one of the big thing was there was really not much momentum after he made his announcement, uh, and now if to announce a running mate or something like that would be, I mean, that's another way to get publicity and uh, and to do that without a whole process would be crazy. Yeah, it's certainly going to be interesting to see where that go. You are uh, our resident soccer analyst expert. So far, all the teams that you have supported at various stages of the World Cup have not fared so well. The World Cup is now uh, coming to a close. Who are you supporting at the moment? And overall, how do you think Qatar did as the host country of the World Cup? Not there, but what I think people love about it is the same thing. I've covered all these Super Bowls. The thing I love most about Super Bowl in Indianapolis is everything's close. Come out of a hotel. Okay, this is where the event is. This is where that – and it's, everything's walkable. I thought that was so cool. You actually walk to the stadium, uh, and, and that's what they're doing in Qatar. So you got all these six stadiums, and you're not hopping on a plane to get there. Now, when it comes to America, and to actually North America, you're going to be flying into Ontario. You're going to be flying to Los Angeles. You're going to be coming to – I wait to say it, not New York and – not Washington. Uh, but you're going to be going to, I think, Tampa. So you're going to get in a plane. So that makes it tough. But the one thing they did about Qatar with building in the middle of the desert, they put all these brand-new stadiums right there. So I, I hear good things about that. I mean, the fact that I haven't heard any massive arrests, any culture clashes, the, the people weren't happy drinking and not being able to drink at the game. But I haven't heard much complaints about it. The fields look ev evidently are fantastic. But, you know, Frank, you're going to hear about how many people died making, making those fields. Mm. So, mm -hmm. so that's going to be the issue. You had two tragedies with media members dying. Uh, turns out that Grant Wall died of a brain aneurysm, forty-nine years old, which is insane. And no, you know, I guess he. Uh, so I, I guess he was carrying this with him. It could have happened anywhere. Mm. So, but I don't think people hold it up to that. So I think they did fine. Uh, the Middle East wants it back. I don't think they're doing it back there again. Number one, there's got to be some, you know, just like the Olympics blew up because of the corruption of the process. I don't think they're going to have corruption of the process anymore. Hence, we should have been hosting this World Cup in America. We lost to this country that actually moved the tournament because it was too hot when, uh, in July when it was, should have been played. And, well, so and they, they lied to Budweiser. Uh, one, they're one of their big Everybody. sponsors. Yeah, so uh, I would uh, I would tend to agree with you. We'll see. We'll see what happens. You, um, I am guessing, come Super Bowl time, you are probably not going to be in the new incarnation of the FTX crypto commercial that so many celebrities have participated in before. Kevin O'Leary was pretty uh, pretty <laughs> uh, confrontational yesterday. He got fifteen million dollars. From FTX, just to represent it. Then he got these coins uh, with it, these tokens that are worthless, and $10 million worth of equity, which is worthless. And people started saying, well, crypto's a scam. And he went at it with Elizabeth Warren. It's probably worth playing back today. So Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank, uh, Mr. Wonderful uh, nickname. So you have other people that are going to come up there. But as you know, I think we might have talked about this last week. If you are uh, Tom Brady, you're getting sued. If you're T uh, Giselle, you're getting sued. Shaquille O'Neal, you're getting sued. Think about all this. They were going to give $100 million to Taylor Swift, $100 million wow. to represent FTX. And, and well, who knows, if that check cleared, 
and it's one year into the deal. Do you turn around and give that money back? Right. Because evidently, even though there's not, this is not exact, they're not going to the projects to get this money, but there's a lot of middle-class people that have lost everything. Because they looked up and they said, everybody's in on this. This is my chance to retire. What could go wrong? Tony Blair and President Clinton are interviewing this guy. He's a world leader. He's a philanthropist. Uh, everybody's uh, everybody's actually going to his conventions. I'm going to put my money in, and they all lost it. It, it, it seems to be uh, – obviously, we'll see what the evidence suggests, but it seems to be – a little bit of a division about whether Sam Bankman-Fried is another Madoff-style Ponzi schemer or if he's somebody that cut some corners and was sloppy in getting caught up. You usually have pretty good instincts for this kind of thing. How do you see this? The worst of the worst of the worst. There was no quality control. Mm -hmm. There was no risk management team. There was no board to answer to. He took a billion dollars worth of investment money, gave it to his horrendous girlfriend who now has turned on him. To talk about how he never asked any questions. Can you imagine? You, I, I know you know the answer to the question. I can't imagine. You can't imagine. Going, let's just take a billion dollars and put it into my girlfriend's Alameda fund. <laughs> and it turns out there was not enough money there to back it up. So when it collapsed, there was no equity and there was no collateral. Yeah, I didn't know that. You didn't know that? You're making decisions like this like it's your savings account? So obviously, if John Casapetides is listening, he understands these numbers. <laughs> uh, I, I don't. I, I when I watch Jamie Dimon say uh, and Warren Buffett say, I would not get any, get near this. I'm saying to myself, why would I ever jump in? That's all I need to know. He, they basically think it's voodoo. Mm. No, so, it, it, it's that's for sure. Uh, lastly, Brian, you do these great specials on uh, Fox Nation where you have different looks at American history and American culture. You've done everything from looking at old Hollywood to looking at the automobile, a lot of interesting things. You're now uh, something perfect for this time of year. You have a look at the history of mo- the modern incarnation of Santa Claus. Is that on Fox Nation now? Uh, it. It's going to be on Friday, starting Friday, which basically you have a situation where our country was in a massive depression through death and destruction after the Civil War. And it just talked about the uh, how the Santa story took root and how America was thirsting for something fun and bright. And the mythology of the whole story took root right after our worst times. And it, I found the whole thing fascinating. So I think that if you're looking to put in perspective, Santa Claus, where did this come from? Which we I get that question almost. Don't you think about that every year? You hear, all the well, time. Where did this come yeah. From? So you just, especially if you have little kids. So you can. It's not gonna. It's not gonna blow anything up if you see it. So if you're watching with your family. So, but you just see, just see how the whole thing happened. How it was about hope, and uh, and and how it, it kept going back to it uh, over and over again. So I, I thought it was a pretty good story. Now that is pretty neat. What's coming up on Fox and Friends this morning? Well, I can tell you what's coming up on our, our show. We got uh, we're going to do a simulcast. Barney and Company could do uh, Axios. Michael Allen will be with us. Coley Shimkus, Center James uh, Langford on uh, on Fox and Friends. We're opening up with the story with what's going on uh, at the border. Uh, the first thing we're going to be doing what's going on at the border. Then we're going to do an FTX, and then we're going to be uh, taking a one stop shopping when it comes to uh, when it comes to what Donald Trump is doing, making his announcement. As Rich Lowry writes. It's, his rollout's been a disaster because mm. there's no plan after the announcement. It should have been a national tour. We're going to look at that and also the government's effort to, to avoid a shutdown. And I don't know if you know this, but Jim Jordan's been making tremendous progress on the origin of the virus as well as plans to bring in the heads of Facebook, Twitter, and others almost right away when we 
uh, when we get back from break, and they officially go into power. So the, the letters have been out. It's going to be written, so we're going to uh, look into that. It's a shame there's nothing interesting to talk about these days, eh, Brian? Right, but don't forget One Nation Saturday at 8 o'clock. Amongst our guests, we're going to talk to Jeb Bush uh, about what he thinks about this field, and, and I'll give it away. He all in on Ron DeSantis. He, he said, get his vote. He's 44 years old. Don't wait. Go for it. Well, it's going to be interesting. Brian Kilmeade, uh, the benefactor of our lunch yesterday. Appreciate it very much. <laughs> great to see you, my friend. Thanks for going, Frank. Thanks for everything, too, and the supporting the show and all your great listeners. Congratulations on all your success. You're killing it. Likewise. Appreciate it. And uh, if people want to see the full cast of characters uh, at the lunch yesterday, I have just retweeted Brian's tweet at Frank Morano. You can see Congressman King, Sid Rosenberg, me, and the whole gang there, the whole Motley crew. Uh, catch Brian every day uh, on uh, the radio. Catch him every day on TV. And Saturday on One Nation. And if you haven't already done so, please uh, check out his book, uh, the President and the Freedom Fighter. You could get more details about the Kilmeade Takes America tour at uh, Kilmeade.com. Uh, if you want to do 15 seconds of fame, you can do so at uh, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-922. That's BrianKilmeade.com, to be certain. Uh, BrianKilmeade.com. If 15 seconds of fame, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is your opportunity to be heard uh, at 800-848-9222 for 15 seconds. It is time for The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Fred Yonkers. Hey, good morning, Frank. My friend Ippy is a mineralogist and a baker. Boy, does he get the pyrite. Ray in the Bronx. Hey, Frank, I diagnosed you. You have the classic case of triple B musical confusion. Go, Curtis. Go, Curtis. Go, Curtis. Go, Curtis. E. Frank in Astoria. You know the uh, captain of the Ecuadorian World Cup uh, soccer selection, Elmer of Valencia, and his partner Caicedo left me uh, stranded with uh, Lionel Mel. Uh, <clears throat> Roger in Massachusetts. 
Yeah, I got almost 10 years out of my $1,200.93 Saturn. Two cars later, I had a Taurus, a 2000 Taurus, which is very comfortable and sturdy. And then finally, uh, this is the time of year I make eggnog cream pie uh, on the graham cracker crust. My uh, Frankie in Glendale. Shout out to Joey in Ronkonkoma. Listen, guys, if you want to volunteer and do things for charity, join the Knights of Columbus is looking for you. If you're a Catholic gentleman, visit www.kofc.org. Russ in Queens. Yes, Frank. Uh, Trump, he was the most persecuted guy in the United States. And all these rats are jumping ship. What a disgrace. You're only as good as, you know the old saying, you're only as good as your last. That's what these rats are doing. Mike in From Parts Unknown. Always a good show, Frank. You know what? I'm going to speak to uh, Brian Kilby. Never called the show. Talk a little about Massapequa baseball and this and that. But all the things that you had, you know, youth is wasted on the young. Luck is the residue of design. And if you don't have good neighbors, like Thomas Jefferson said... Only Brian Kilmeade would brag about doing an interview with Jeb Bush. Neil on Staten Island. If you think you're going gray now, imagine if you had Avery instead of Matt Blake. <laughs> Jeff on Staten Island. Frank, I want you to do five Hail Marys and three Our Fathers for promoting strippers in church. Well, thank you, Jeff. Appreciate that. Well, that we'll we'll end it there. I did not po- uh, promote strippers in church. I specifically said, in response to a suggestion of how to drum up church attendance, to the person that suggested strippers in church. I didn't think that that was practical. I think that's what I said. All right. This has been a lot of fun. Normally, I tell you that uh, I'll be back tomorrow. But if you are listening to WABC in New York, I'm going to be back in one hour as part of the Tunnel to Towers Radio Thon. If you're listening around the country, you can listen at WABCRadio.com. But uh, there's some great programming coming your way for the rest of the day. So um, whatever you choose to do, I appreciate it. Just be back this time tomorrow. Frank Moreno, good day.